not inviting everyone. I had no idea this uh, this topic will still be polarizing after all this time. Well, I, I think it's polarizing because it's a continued fight. It's definitely a continued fight. I, I think the um, the 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 consensus is actually swapped, it seems, you know, because the, the consensus a year ago was vaccines are the only way to go. And now all of a sudden people are, you know, more and more people are skeptical. So, so you think it's shifting more, the, the, the anti-vaccine movement is getting stronger now in your opinion? So anti-vaccine is, is a word that has to be used carefully because you don't have to be anti-vaccine. I'd say, I'd, I'd rephrase it. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. I'll, I'll rephrase yeah. it. The concerns with vaccines is accelerating. Correct. Uh, specifically mRNA vaccines. But the others are worse, no? Uh, the Chinese well, I mean, ones. I, well, sure. I mean, I don't know much about the Chinese vaccines. I imagine everything Chinese is worse. But, oh, all, all my uh, friends in Asia, uh, and I've got quite a few, uh, they, they know the Sinovac is, has not been successful. I think there was a later version that some claim was a little bit better, but it was far less effective with, uh, when it came out at about the same time as the Pfizer and Moderna. So. What was the handle? Um, what is the handle? There's a guy, um, the one that came in yesterday, the one that we were talking about, a great speaker, uh, John Joseph Lee. What's his handle? Oh, don't invite Jeff. No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll figure it out real quick. <laughs> uh, I'll figure it out, Mario. Hold on. Cool, man. Yeah, I need to invite him as well. He's He really improved. Like He started giving uh, others the opportunity to speak, and I think the audience uh, enjoyed his perspective because he knew what he's talking it's, about. Uh, it's at I, had, I, invited, I invited him, just invited him. Okay. All right, good. Cool. I see if some requests to speak. We'll be we'll be adding those up in a bit. Uh, just getting the panel organized. So we're doing this panel. That was an unexpected panel. Hopefully, it doesn't get interrupted by the Fauci files, which could drop. You know, they could drop today. Uh, I hope they don't. And that sounds good to me. Yeah, it doesn't sound good to me, man. I got to wake up early tomorrow. I got to speak at an event. But um, <laughs> if they do drop, we'll be covering the Fauci files. The next space we'll be doing will be covering um, Fauci's response to COVID. And obviously, there's a lot of concerns uh, swirling around COVID. And, and Nick, you made a good point. You said, Mario, every time I tweet anything about Fauci, it gets the most engagement. So that kind of says it all. Right. It's a topic people care a lot about. They feel like they were wrong. Yeah, I actually got a question. I'll kick it off with uh, with you, Nick, and maybe go to anyone else before we kick off the discussion about the, the long-term effects of both COVID and the vaccines, because we're still understanding both. Um, we're learning them as we go. But the first question is unrelated to the topic, just while warming up uh, the stage and, and waiting for the speakers to join. Mm-hmm. Briefly, why is there so many concerns around Fauci? What, what, what concerns do you know about and what concerns do you have? Because it's been proven multiple times that Fauci publicly lied to, to you know, on TV in the early days of the pandemic when he learned about the uh, lied about the efficacy of, of uh, respirators specifically. And then flip-flopped on it later, they knew damn well that he was lying about the efficacy of, of, um, N95 respirators in, in the beginning. And the reason that he justified that later was because he said that he didn't want to have a run on those masks, 
so that they would be taken away from people in the medical community. However, what that did was it proved to the American public that the government will lie to them. So because they are lying and, 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 and admitted to lying, now all of a sudden everything they say is questioned and it's scrutinized. So they have not found any way to actually fix that issue. What they continue to do is chastise people, call them fake news, and go after them. That's the biggest issue we're facing right now. Well, don't forget, too, that uh, we we got a revelation through FOIA requests, and Tom Fitton may have done it. We probably should <clears throat> let him know we're up and doing this. But I can't remember who if it was him or someone else that got it out. But uh, Dr. Bhattacharya had, and others, respected physicians, some of the most respected physicians out there anywhere in the world, um, both Fauci with Francis Collins, specifically worked to shut down the Barrington Declaration, which had questions, uh, which offered questions about two major issues. One, in general, the shutdowns, and then two, the the mandate making uh, vaccines mandatory for younger people. So um, they, they went on a tear to uh, through social media and through media in general, broadcast media in general to shut down any discussion of the Barrington declaration. So Fauci was strongly behind that with Francis Collins. And that's another amongst many reasons why people are problematic with it. Yeah. By the way, he mishandled, right. he mishandled the AIDS epidemic situation there are people in the uh the the community that were were very concerned about the aids epidemic he got a lot of criticism during that time because of his horrible response to it i think also he should have never go ahead i was saying just the over the last six months he sort of portrayed this this very unique hubris he's been asked on multiple networks by multiple reporters you know, do you think you went too far with the closing of the schools? And he says, I don't want to say you ever made a mistake because it'll be taken out of context. And then he would throw out the line, like, I never recommended anyone to shut anything down. But we have, like, all the receipts. I mean, it was the easiest video I've ever made in my life, which was just going through of him actually saying, we need to shut the country down. We need to shut the schools down. It, it's like he he just he won't admit anything that he's wrong and you see for example we, we worked really close with dr atlas dr atlas in his book talks about confronting fauci in the hall and just saying you know i've shown all these details you know we've got two hundred and fifty thousand cases of potential domestic abuse that we missed just in the spring of 2020 because teachers and administrators are typically the ones who find that out and kids weren't in school what 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 should we do don't you think people are a little bit too frightened, and he says, "No, they're not frightened enough." Right? It was fear was his main tactic, and you know we're giving him a chance here in these last few months. Take a look back. What do you think? And he won't admit anything wrong, and everyone knows he's in the wrong here. Right. Well, people well, he, want to put him literally... on that tribunal if he admits to anything wrong. So why would he be incentivized to admit to any wrongdoing? Sure. Is that... I mean, he literally. He literally went up there on stage behind the podium uh, back in the be- near the beginning of the pandemic and said that we need to shut the whole country down. If you remember, 14 days to stop the spread. You know, how long did that go on? You know, five, six months, eight months. And then don't forget so. the other topic that is always at the top of this discussion of Fauci is uh, 
t- the uh, uh, use of uh, NAIAD funds on gain of function research uh, in in the Wuhan lab, the the lab that, leak theory, that, the lab leak theory. Yeah, that's not just I want to do a space on theory, this, but the funding through Eco Health Alliance and the fact that uh, Rand Paul kept asking him the question in Senate hearings, and he refused to say that they did any gain-of-function research. So that, that's a big part of this. Well, what they did was they changed the definition of gain-of-function research. The, the NIAID actually went back and changed the definition, right? And so that was his excuse for saying that he didn't lie under oath. Right? When he you know, gain-of-function, gain-of-function, all that stuff, does it even matter? Just accept what they say that their vaccine is, what they think that it does, and even based on that science, it doesn't work. Well, and 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 I mean, Dr. I, Lee, Dr. Lee, you're right. But 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 I guess what we're setting up here is why are people so uh, turned up and, and and get the heat meter going really high every time they hear about Fauci? And we're just kind of laying out some of the things that people think. Okay, of. Well, I'll give you that. Jim, you're right, though. Jim, I'll, I'll give you on Jim, the, Jim, Jim. I'll give you more information. Have you heard any of the stuff that I've said? Yeah, I have. I've been listening to you for days now. Got it. One thing I I want to point out is, like, we have a problem, a systems problem, it seems to me, because, uh, you know, we have people like Fauci and others that are making decisions that aren't necessarily always rooted in, grounded in science, but there is no transparency or process by which we kind of can see, okay, this decision to, say, shut down schools or, you know, not to allow visitors to hospitals or things like that, uh, this is made because X and Y. So how can we, you know, going forward, if something like this, God forbid, happens again, how can we make the system better so that we do have a transparency where we can see, okay, this policy is being made because X and Y and it's grounded in some sort of science as opposed to, you know, politics or or just arbitrary. Because who does who determines what the science is? So guys, I want to I want to get into the hey, shit. Uh, Andrew Tate is trending. I'm just looking at what's trending. It popped up on the right. I didn't know Andrew Tate is still trending. Um, yeah, so I want to kick off with a discussion about the long-term impact of, of the vaccine. So if you don't uh, – who's – actually, I'll ask the question directly. Can you put your hand up if you have been vaccinated? And that goes for the panelists and the audience as well. If you have been vaccinated, uh, it would be great if you could put your hand up. Uh, so you got – all right, so we got one, two, three, four, pretty much split, five, six. So we have four not vaccinated, and then we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven vaccinated. And just for the record, many people that don't like the vaccine have been vaccinated or that have concerns with the vaccines have been vaccinated. So I want to kick it off with Steve. Steve, what would you say is the one biggest concern you have about the vaccine that you think the audience should know? And the audience, this is an opportunity for you. We're going to go through all the concerns, long-term concerns of the vaccine versus concerns of COVID. We're going to start with the vaccines. Steve, the mic is yours. Yeah, so it's hard to pin uh, just one, but I, I'd say that the the most serious adverse event from the vaccines is it, it kills people, and it kills massive numbers of people. And I just did a, a poll on Twitter, which I did an hour ago. I have 12,000 responses, and it was just done an hour ago. I asked, did anyone in your household die from the COVID vaccine? Not COVID virus, the COVID vaccine from the COVID vaccine. 
8.8% said yes, 91.2% said no. And this is pretty consistent. Just, just to clarify, those Sorry. are people that are, those are people that are following you specifically, right? Yes, yes. And when we've done polls where people are not following me, and by the way, I encourage anyone, hey, if there's anyone in this room who, who is a pro-vaxxer, uh, like, uh, uh, Lisa Dunn or anybody, um, go run the same poll. Lisa, I, I challenge you. But I have a, to I have run a question for you. It's, it's a good, it's a good poll to run, I think, for everyone. But I have a question for you. Like, how, when you say that anyone in your household die from the COVID vaccine, <clears throat> people might assume it's the vaccine. And we've seen cases of people coming and saying, uh, I know it's the vaccine, but it could be co- correlation rather than causation. Uh, no, no, of course. It, 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 it could be. This is just opinion. But, you know, the thing is that we have lots of data points that validate this, including the professional opinion of doctors. Who, t- who regularly tell us that it's one in a thousand or two in a thousand uh, death rates that they're seeing in their practices. So these are just data points, but they're interesting data points because they're very consistent. And so in this poll, I got 8.7%, but in the uh, the polls that, that I've run that were, were done for an independent sample, I get six six 6.6%. So even if, if it's wrong, even if it's off by an order of magnitude, there are 123 million uh, households in America, and if you've got a six six percent of those that have a death, even if it's 0.6 percent that have death, that's caused by the vaccines, and people are are overestimating by 90 percent, like nine out of ten are wrong. You know, you're still looking at over half a million deaths. What, what would, uh, what would you say? The what would you say so, is the, the main? What, what's the reason people are dying from the vaccine? In your perspective? Because fundamentally, what the vaccine is doing is. It's causing the body, it's causing an autoimmune reaction. It's causing the body to attack organs and shut them down, uh, with, uh, uh, multi, uh, a multi-organ failure with, uh, cardiac arrest. So what's happening is these, the mRNA, uh, is going into your, your heart tissue, for example. It is basically making your heart look like it's a foreign, uh, organism. And so your immune system is now attacking that foreign organism and trying to kill it as best it can, and that killing uh, can result in death. Now, that can happen in your heart. It can happen in your lungs. It can happen in your brain. And it's not just the the autoimmune function, but it's also the these when expressed as spike protein. Before you finish, can I say a couple of things? Just as, along uh, those in, a bit, in a bit, Joseph. I, I'll let you comment on it right after, Joseph, yeah, and then we'll get yeah, Eugene yeah, or someone to reply. Yeah. So I'll go to you next, uh, Joseph. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Steve. Yeah, so uh, so what happens is that the, that the blood clots, the what happens is inflammation and blood clots, and then these blood clots lead to loss of blood flow uh, to your brain, uh, to your to your lungs. I mean, you look at at pulmonary embolism in VARES, and pulmonary embolism is elevated versus a normal vaccine by over nine hundred times. And you know why is what that? is that called? What, sorry, so what is that called? Pulmonary? How do you spell it? How do you say it? Pulmon- pulmonary okay. embolism. It's basically a blood, blood clot in your lungs so you can't breathe. You can't breathe. You, you, you're, you die pretty quickly. I got it. So you're, you're basically, if you, if you hit your, your heart, your lungs, or your brain, it's pretty much, uh, you know, a very quick, a sudden death game over. And in fact, these blood clots that we're seeing in people, and usually we see them somewhere around six months or so after they, um, 
uh, after they get the, 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 a shot. Um, these these clots, these strange clots that have been removed from people, some of these things are two feet long, and they're removed from live people. So I know of a case where a two foot long intact, and that's important, it's intact blood clot. These are not normal blood clots. Normal blood clots, you would never be able to remove a two foot long intact blood clot from any person ever before. And we're seeing two foot long intact blood clots removed from live people. Okay. So I, I, I took notes on this concern before we go to Joseph. Um, one other question, Steve, and then I'd, I'd love uh, Lisa to reply to your hand up, uh, Lisa and Joanna, and then we'll go to Joseph. But my question to you, Steve, is when do these problems or what do these symptoms come up like is there a certain period like one year after the vaccine you're good or two years you're good i know we don't know for sure but in your opinion when do you think that people could be like i took the vaccine it's been a year i could at least breathe it didn't you know i, I didn't get yeah. the, the blood clot or the autoimmune so, reaction so the, the, the answer is that we don't know and uh it's it's probably diminishing returns over the period it's not like you know, you see in VARES, you see most of the, uh, you see a lot of reports in the first week in VARES and then it trickles down and it, it goes down from there. But, but a lot of that is just reporting bias because when it happens in the first week after they get the vaccine, it's much more likely to get reported in VARES. Whereas if you have a heart attack like three weeks or, or three months after you get the vaccine, it's much less likely to be reported in VARES. And so you have to look at the all-cause mortality data and you have to look at the death records. And so what I've done is I've surveyed people and I said, hey, do you know anyone who died? Tell me when did they die? And what did they die from? And what you see is that the, the deaths are, are spread out over time because these blood clots can, you know, it's a very random event, whether the, the blood clot, you know, kills you a week later or it kills you six months later. In the case of Asim Malhotra, his dad died six months after he got, um, uh, vaccinated. And I, and I know of, of anecdotally of cases where both parents died after being vaccinated six months after they were vaccinated. And, you know, that should be really rare to find that. So, so we're seeing these things and, and uh, like I know a guy who, who, uh, who got the vaccine, had severe events, and it took him a year to die. Um, Steve, so. Uh, Steve, quick question for you, Steve. Um, the, the VAERS system, a lot of people here are familiar with VAERS. Uh, how reliable is that data? And who can enter that data into the system? So the VARA system uh, is very reliable, except when the uh, it, it shows an adverse event that goes against the government narrative, and then the government says it's not reliable at all. So true story. The, true story. Yeah. So so when they VARS is underreported, so they, they they'll look they'll go to VARS and they'll say, look, myocarditis. There were only you know. 5,000 reports of myocarditis. Well, those represent probably 500,000 cases, but they'll go to the 5,000 cases and say, see, only 5,000 cases out of the 250 million uh, doses we've delivered, and therefore, see, look, VAERS proves our point that uh, the vaccines are super safe. But they never reply the underreporting factor of theirs, and they never talk about the underreporting factor of theirs in any of these ACIP committee meetings or the Verbeck uh, committee meetings. I have never, never ever heard John Sue or uh, uh, Tom Shimbakuru go and talk about the underreporting factor of VAERS. He says, oh, yeah, VAERS is underreported, but they never, ever talk about the underreporting factor. They know, but they never talk about that. So 
you ask about the reliability. It's very, it's very reliable. It's underreported. It's underreported by at least a factor of 41. And that's for the most severe events. It's factor of 41 because the most severe event that's, that's supposed to be always reported is anaphylaxis. And we know there was a, uh, Blumenthal paper. It was published by, published in JAMA and it showed a, I think it was like 2.4 per 10,000, uh, vaccination rate of anaphylaxis. And so we know what the, did I drop out? Did Steve drop out? Calculate the under- He definitely dropped out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're back. That was Ed Dowd uh, ca- yeah, calling me. Um, so w- we know what the under-reporting factor is for the, for the event that's supposed that is happening right in front of the healthcare worker, and it's obvious it was caused by the vaccine, and those are under-reported by a factor of 41. Got it. So, so death, okay. death so I, I've got is, is worse, right? So, fifteen thousand deaths in VARES half is over half a million deaths by a factor of forty-one. Did you say underreported by a factor of for 41? the most severe events? If it's less severe, then and if, and it's less likely to be associated. It's going to be reported at, at an even higher rate. So, in other words, uh, something like a pulmonary embolism uh, might be reported at sixty sixty x or or seventy x. Um, menstrual issues might be uh, 100x or more. Can I ask something about blood clots? Um, because blood clots are, are very, very common. They always have been. Um, I'm just looking at data here that suggests back in 2008, studies showed that between 100,000 and 300,000 people died per year of blood clots, which was more than um, AIDS, breast cancer, and motor vehicle crashes combined. So... But is there is there data that suggests that more people are dying now of blood clots than say ten years ago when when studies were taken on blood clots? Well, I think what you do, what you do is you look at the various reports for different vaccines uh, each year and 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 compare them and and you can look at the the blood clots associated with the COVID vaccines and compare them because you're always going to get some amount of reporting of background events. So all the deaths and bears, for example, are not caused by the vaccine, for sure. There, there are probably 250, maybe even a 1,000 death reports that are just coincidental um, to people dying. And so the same thing is true with any other adverse event like blood clots. And so the, the proof of the pudding is to just look at the number of excess events um, for these vaccines compared to other vaccines and and that's how you can uh, assess that. So I, I want to go to Lisa to to respond. So so Lisa, we've got a few points made here. And by the way, Eugene, if you want to jump in, I know Joseph tried to speak earlier, so I know he wants to jump in. Anytime you want to jump in, Eugene, just put your hand up as well, so I know. Um, so there's uh, three main uh, two, two main points I want to focus on. Actually, three. The 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 co- the vaccine causing an autoimmune reaction, leading to multi organ failure with cardiac arrest. Um, the second one will be the blood clot. And then the third one is the underreporting of VAERS that's been mentioned uh, a lot by people. Um, you can respond to one or all of them, Lisa. Okay, so just to sort of also take a high-level view of this, the vast majority of the world now has been vaccinated or has had natural infection with COVID. COVID itself programs your cells to make the same Spike protein, this and multiple other proteins. Who has the floor? Pardon me. Sorry, go go ahead, Lisa. Oh. Joseph, I'll, I'll give you the mic. I'll give you the mic in a bit. I know you'll disagree with points, Joseph. Sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Okay, so so COVID itself um, infects cells, and it, 
it takes over the machinery of the cell to reproduce the virus and produce spike protein as well. So spike protein is going to be there with natural infection and spike protein is going to be there with vaccination as well. The the thing about the spike protein itself is it does not have anywhere near the same degree of pathogenicity as does the whole virus. And the point of the vaccination is to try to prevent people from getting sick from the virus. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't test positive for the virus because the virus can still sneak up in your boogers um, and in your nose and in your airways. But you've once you've been vaccinated, what you've done is you've primed your immune system to be able to deal with the virus preferentially before it has a chance to get into cells. So, so that's the, that's the point of the vaccination. So the fact that, 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 that you get blood clots, you get blood clots with the virus. The fact that you get, that you get, uh, you know, pulmonary failure, you get pulmonary failure with the virus. You get myocarditis with the virus. You get all of these things with the so, virus. W- w- and- so just to make sure I just, sorry, I'll, to make sure I understand, Lisa, what you're saying is that, are you implying that the vaccine might increase those risks, but the virus increases them significantly more, significantly or are you not more. implying the first point? No. Okay, so you are. There, there okay, is there is an association. There is a signal that came out of VAERS that suggests that there is a higher risk in certain age groups in certain demographics of people getting myocarditis. There's an association. Companies are looking at that association now and actively pursuing to see whether or not it's it's a real thing. Some people are concerned that it might be, and understandably so. I think that it's valid to be concerned about those things. Um, And I think it's reasonable to have, once again, I think it's important to be able to discuss these things publicly. Uh, There should be a full airing of both sides of the debate, especially, you know, with people who've who've got a significant um, credibility, uh, you know, like Vinay Prasad. Dr. Dunn, before I ask you, before I ask you a question, Nick, just to explain to the audience, the VAERS that we refer to is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is by the CDC. It just reports on adverse effects um, by, uh, from the vaccine. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, yep. Nick, but I'll let you ask your question. That's correct. That's correct. So, Dr. Don, I, I do want to ask this question uh, because there is a, an important distinction here. Uh, when you're saying that you are much more likely to have heart problems or myocarditis, from uh, COVID rather than the vaccine, does this include five-year-olds, a lot of which have been forced to receive this vaccine? It's across the board. And once again, almost everybody has been exposed to COVID at this this point. And so 69% of the world, 70% of the world has gotten at least one dose of vaccine. There have been 13 billion doses administered. Um, So I think that if you had... A, you know, a very severe, very common side effect from this vaccine, we would be seeing a lot, a lot, a lot more than just reports to bears. We would personally know lots more people who've been having problems. And so I think that in terms of excess mortality that's been reported at bears, once again, that is not granular data. That's saying that, you know, people, first of all, became aware of bears 
um, with COVID. So I think that there's been increased reporting to that system because um, of awareness of it, um, which I don't think was that prevalent before. Now, what happened in 2021 that could also contribute to excess mortality? The Delta variant, which is a much more severe variant, showed up on on the on the on the horizon, and it was it, it it had some vaccine escape properties about it. So you had a natural infection that resulted in more severe outcomes. Um, it increased 108. So there's a, a, an article in. Uh, 2021 that was describing a 108% increase in hospitalization, 235% increase in ICU admission, and 133% increase in death. Um, and it, that was from the Canadian Medical Association. And that was looking at um, over 200,000 people in October 2021. So Delta is one explanation for why you could have had an increased excess mortality in, in, in that uh, time frame. You also had an increase in drug overdoses that led to death by 15% between 2020 and 2021. That went from 90 Why is that? Is that related to the... What, what, is that related to anything or unrelated completely to COVID? It is related to probably mental health issues and COVID lockdown and, and, and the impacts of the actual lockdown, I think, resulted in a lot more um, harm um, in, in, in sort of un, unforeseen ways. So you had increases in uh, drug overdoses and suicide because I think of mental health um, problems because people weren't socializing and separating from other people and things like that. Um, uh, you know, you had um, increases in, in uh, can't, delayed diagnosis for cancer, diabetes, um, heart disease, underlying all of that because people weren't going to the doctor. So I think that there are a lot of very logical explanations to why you've got an increased death or excess mortality, um, all-cause mortality, um, that that don't hinge on the actual just vaccine. Um, so, so that's... Understood, understood. So I, I, I think... Mary, can I just, because I just looked up some stats, just jumping back to the, the blood clots. There was a request for the UK uh, Office of National Statistics uh, regarding all uh, blood clot related deaths between 2019 and 2021. Now, the UK didn't get their vaccines until the middle of 2021. The blood clot deaths were actually lower in 2021 than they were in 2020. There was no increase. Um, and I think, I think, um, what what Dr. Dunn was saying there is so important. Everybody's so focused on the vaccines as a cause of blame that they're ignoring the fact that we've had, you know, a very serious illness spread throughout the entire planet and infect billions of people that carries, you know, reputedly worse symptoms than the, the vaccine side effects. So I'm, I'm really glad, Dr. Dunn, that you, you've said that so clearly uh, here because I think it's been missed a lot on these spaces. So I would love, before going to Eugene and Justin, and I see Nelson's hand up, and I know Joseph, you'll be getting the mic for a while, so, so don't worry. Uh, I, I want to go get Steve to respond, because uh, there's a lot of points here uh, that Lisa made in response to what you talked about. Sure. So, And then maybe and maybe also if you can also refer, uh, uh, respond to Sam's uh, statistic about blood clots not increasing in the UK from 2020 versus 2021. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not familiar with that data. Um, but I will address all of uh, uh, Lisa's other points. So she said that COVID 
I'll, I'll try to be as fast as I can. Said so COVID takes over cells too. Yeah, but COVID, see, doesn't work the way these mRNA vaccines. mRNA vaccines basically, they, they got, they got a free pass everywhere. They got a free pass to your brain. They got a free pass to your lungs. They got a free pass to your, your, um, your heart. This is what, what these lipid nanoparticles and the a polyethylene glycol do is they create like this, uh, a Romulan cloaking device where this stuff can get all over your body. When you get a natural infection, it doesn't happen anywhere near uh, with the intensity of these vaccines. When you get a natural infection, it goes in through your nose, and your immune system starts to, to fight it in the nose. It's not got, it doesn't have a free pass to every place in your body. These things are not even – we're not even talking like the same kind of uh, uh, mechanism here. So – so please don't, that's, you know, that's, that's, you that's, really need to. No, that's patently. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't interrupt you, but, but if, if you want to have a debate, let's, let's get some uh, virologists, um, on here and let's have the experts do that. Cause I've spent a lot of time talking with Dr. Malone and I've spent a lot of time talking with Dr. Byron Bridal and, and other folks and, I can tell you that's how this stuff works. And it basically penetrates the, the lipid nanoparticles, allow it to penetrate the blood-brain barrier, which is why people are having strokes. As far as the spike protein not as pathogenic, that's just, that's just not the case. We are seeing, you know, this is why when I do these surveys, I'm getting these, these enormous, like, I've never been able to do a survey where the number of deaths from from COVID and the vaccine are not comparable. And sometimes I've seen surveys where the vaccine deaths are like three times the number of COVID deaths. So, you know, sure, uh, COVID can kill people, but these vaccines are supposed to be safe and effective. They're not supposed to be killing anywhere near the number of people. And now, as, as far as the vaccine priming your immune system preferentially, well, you know, the the real... the best way to prime your immune system is to actually get the virus and get over it and that really primes your immune system these things what they do is they destroy your immune system and and that's been documented with the igg three levels and igg four levels and i don't know how you can say that it primes your immune system when it's it's basically destroying you know going igg three goes to zero in the study that i saw and IgG4 goes up, and IgG4 is not your friend. So when you say it's priming your immune system, this thing is destroying your immune system, and that's just one small example. As far as myocarditis goes, I have no, I have yet to find a single cardiologist in the entire United States where the rate of myocarditis went down after the vaccines um, uh, rolled out. And in fact, I talk to nurses all the time, and they are livid. These nurses are livid. They have never seen myocarditis in kids, ever. Like, you know, they would never see a case, and now they're seeing it all the time. They're seeing kids die from uh, from heart attacks that, that should never have died. They're seeing kids with myocarditis that they would never have seen before and that they never saw when COVID was was present. It's only after the vaccines rolled out that these nurses are livid and and you know we should um uh, yeah, get a, a couple of nurses in this room so that they can talk. I don't know if yeah, Angela Wolbrecht is here. Yes, yeah, so yeah, these are you know yeah, yeah. We're, uh, and, and uh, okay and as far as increased reporting to the VAERS system 
There is absolutely not a shred of evidence whatsoever that is a total hand-waving argument that has no evidentiary support hey, whatsoever. Hey, I, I you de- defy I you. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll let no, you. let me let me finish. Yeah, I, I, yeah. So not, let me finish that last point on the various report, Steve, before letting Lisa reply again. Uh, you know, look, I, I let her go through everything. I didn't interrupt her. I'm responding to all of her points. Yeah, definitely. Incre- I understand, yeah. There, there is there is no evidentiary support. I have surveyed healthcare workers. And maybe Liza has. I'd like to see her surveys of healthcare workers. And I'll show you my surveys because my surveys were done by a professional pollster. It was done by a third-party list of healthcare workers. They are not my followers. And it showed that these people are not um, reporting at an increased rate. And if they, and, and how can you explain how this increased reporting is happening everywhere in the world and it's only happening for the COVID vaccines and it is not happening for any other vaccine in the world? Um, as far as the Delta variant, come on, uh, Liza, you've seen the insurance company data. The people who are employed and have life insurance policies uh, through the insurance companies, these people are the healthiest on the planet. And what's happened is an inversion, that the people who are employed now are dying at a greater rate than the people who are not employed. So the healthiest people are dying at a higher rate. And this is after the vaccines rolled out, and this is in Q3. How do you explain wait, that wait, in Q3? Wait, wait. Why are these healthy? We'll do it no. later, so. Come on, last point. Let, me, let, me, let me finish. Okay, and the final thing is that find me a physician geriatric practice, 65-year-olds or older, where they report that, wow, when the vaccines rolled out, boy, my death rates just went, you know, down by 10%, no more COVID deaths, and I didn't experience any excess mortality. Find me one practice in the entire United States where that is true because every single practice I have talked to it is the reverse. It is that these vaccines have been a complete disaster. And I, I ran a poll of, uh, uh, for people, hey, give me the, the pros and the cons. Give me the, the nursing homes where it went down and the nursing homes where it went up. And I could not find a single nursing home. I even asked on Nextdoor. I was desperate. I asked on Nextdoor, find me a single nursing home where the rates went down. The all-cause mortality rates went down after they rolled out these vaccines that are protecting us from COVID, and I couldn't get a single nursing home where the rates went down. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Steve. Lisa, so, I'll let you respond. There's a lot, a lot of points there, so so the mic is yours. I've, I've already responded to all-cause mortality. Um, sudden cardiac death prior to COVID was one one of the leading causes of death in the United States, just going, you know, 356,000 people, sudden cardiac deaths per, per year, 90% fatal. In, in the pediatric population, and this was reported in resuscitation in 2020, that there were 23,000 cases a year in the United States. Based, and this was data that, that preceded COVID. So there are absolutely cases of sudden cardiac death. Um, in adults and in children that, that are why it's widely prevalent. Um, it's one of those things that is, is there at baseline. So COVID exacerbated that. And although I think that you are, are, are pointing at the vaccines as a problem, the COVID virus uses the same machinery 
in the cell to make itself, including the spike protein. So the COVID virus causes all of the things that you are saying that the vaccine causes. And if you have a a variant that can escape the protection of the vaccine, that variant can also cause disease. So I'm not saying that there is absolutely no association between vaccination and um, a, a and a an outcome like myocarditis, I think that there is a signal there. Um, the actual mRNA vaccines, the the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, have a they've been paying very close attention to clotting, and there is not a signal there with clotting, as far as I'm aware. And I've been looking very closely at that data. I can pop in Mario. If, yeah, what, jump, jump in, Justin, and then we'll go to to Eugene. Nelson has been waiting for a while. No, no good um, discussion. And then we'll go to Joseph. I would say in general, you know, look, there's there's something going on. Uh, UK reported at the end of last year that they are seeing week over week about a 20% excess deaths, uh, increase over, ex- over over the deaths that they would expect during that time frame. So something's going on. Yeah, what's what is important- that, on that point, Justin, I'll let you continue. Yeah. I know you have a lot of points. But on that particular point, the excess death argument. So can you so – is there statistics showing that – the, the 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 rate of excess deaths around the world has increased and people are you know yeah, saying it, that it, it differs per country so yeah it differs per country so for example uh in in Sweden their excess deaths I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss the idea that people know people or have themselves experienced very very bad reactions to the vaccine so, so, so that's Justin, my guess. UK reported at the end of last year that they are seeing week over week about a 20% excess deaths uh, increase over ex- over over the deaths that they would expect during that time frame. So something's going on. Yeah, what's what important- that, on, on that point, Justin, I'll let you continue. Yeah. I know you have a lot of points, but on that particular point, the excess death argument. So can you? So is there statistics showing that the 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 the, the rate of excess deaths around the world has increased and people are, you know, yeah, saying it, that it, it differs per country. So yeah, it differs per country. So for example, uh, in in Sweden, their excess deaths were not significantly higher than they were in the previous five years. And the way it works is just very simple. You take uh, the last five-plus years of deaths that you would expect over a given period of time. You average that out across, and you account for um, you know different age brackets and everything else there, and it goes up. And so the next year you say, I'm expecting you know 2,000 people to die this week in my country. Uh, and when 4,000 deaths come in, you go, well, something happened, right? So those excess deaths you would then look so at. So I have, I have another question for you on that point. Everyone is, is using excess death to blame the vaccines, but couldn't the excess death also come from unreported uh, COVID? Oh, they, deaths? they absolutely could, and that's why you know that's why it's significant because uh, there were I think twenty five hundred deaths reported at the week ending December twenty third in the UK. Uh, a very very and and that's a twenty percent increase uh, over the deaths that they would expect over that time period. Uh, but it doesn't compare to you know the the number of COVID deaths was very very small. So it's. The idea is when you, when you compare COVID deaths to the deaths that we're actually seeing, and very well could be lockdown deaths. We know, for example, there was a significant increase in lockdown deaths over the spring of 2020. But right now, none of that should be occurring. And so we're wondering why that is. So, but there are so, clues, and I'm not sure that – go ahead. So another question yeah, for you again. Because um, Steve and Lisa were talking about underreporting. But could they the, – the same underreporting that we saw with vaccinated people – couldn't we have the same potential underreporting with people that have COVID? 
Uh, possibly, but for example, when you use the case surveillance file, which is the master file that the CDC uses to track uh, every single case there. I mean, it's a very large file. It's like 10 gigabytes, so you need a really good machine and a business intelligence platform to use it. Um, when you compare that, for example, in the same apples-to-apples way that you would the burdens of influenza, right? So for influenza, you're looking at how many people got infected, how many people had a doctor's visit, how many people were hospitalized, and how many people died. And, you know, when you actually pare it down to the data that they have in the CDC, and you would say, well, I need to know how many people were hospitalized and how many people had a actual lab-confirmed case of covid uh, it comes out to about 347,000 deaths and not the 980,000 when they widen the scope there. So there's actually a very much an overcounting as far as I see it, but I can see people interpreting in different ways. But I think the, the main thing I wanted to, to bring up here, Mario, was that there, there are new reports. I'm not sure Liza uh, is aware of them just out this week. Um, of course, the VAERS data was finally released um, from uh, from the government. And we're able to look at those things. Now, there, I think it's been reported that there are you know, 770 different signals using their own PRM metrics there. Some of these are very minor AEs, but some of them, like the usual ones, the pulmonary embolism, the acute myocardial infection, those are all there. Also, just yesterday, just yesterday, the FDA, or maybe it was two days ago, the FDA published finally, finally, one of its reports, uh, looking again at the background rate of the, uh, the, the adverse reactions towards previous vaccinations on 65 plus year olds. And they indeed confirmed a 50% increase in pulmonary embolisms and a 42% increase in acute myocardial infection. So that's both clots and heart attacks. Now what's from crazy the, from is the, from the vaccine. From the vaccine. And, and this is, this is published by the FDA. Now what's really troubling have, is sorry. they've had this, they've had yeah, this data all along and they haven't published it until just now. Lisa, um, and, Justin, before you continue, Lisa, on this data, have you seen that particular data that Justin's referring to? No, I haven't see, seen that data and I will look at it and, and with an open mind, but uh, I have not seen I it. Oh, perfect. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so Eugene, yeah, they had two other sort of, um, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I was going to tell Eugene, if you can go through that data as well, um, I'd love, and love your take on it. Uh, but I'd let you continue, Justin. Yeah, so, uh, I think another important study that came out in this last week was a study that found the immune, they, they actually looked at, uh, I, several, I, I was several dozen people, young adults, males, who had myocarditis after vaccination. Then they looked at a control group to understand exactly what they were looking at. They found the same exact levels of the type of antibody responses. So, you know, it was anticipated that the systems were going tilt, right? That That is actually one sort of theory that's out there, that um, when you have an actual COVID-19 infection, your body's already full of antibodies. The younger you are, the, whole, the, the longer and stronger those sort of immune responses take hold. If you now give an injection of the mRNA vaccine, there is some evidence that those can let the system go tilt and provide what they call immune complexes, and that can cause joint pain problems and probably other things as well. But in this latest study, what it seems to confirm is that the antibody levels that they measured on the patients that were young adults that had myocarditis after a vaccination were almost exactly the same as those that had just COVID-19 uh, and, and those antibodies that came in there. So, what happens now is we need to look at this very closely. What they did find in those patients that had myocarditis after a COVID vaccination was that there was a higher levels of free 
unbound spike proteins in the blood. And this is the biggest fear. Now, there are lots of places where there can be fail-safes in the vaccine. It could be, for example, in the QA process, much like someone described to me, like kind of like Newman's own salad dressing. You know, if you're not handling these vials right or not doing a, a proper QA, you can actually get more of the vaccine and less of the fluid that goes with it. Um, or even as uh, Christine Grace has pointed out, uh, there's very replete literature around the storage of the LMPs, the lipid nanoparticles. And if they are frozen, if they are unfrozen, if they're frozen again, it can cause significant issues. Then you have another issue, which is at the point of administration. So you can see I'm kind of going through a workflow. There's a there's a point of failure at the QA, that is the quality assurance, as they say QC in the in the industry there, the quality control of the virus of the vac the vaccine vials itself. There's a storage element that could be in factor. There's an administration of the vaccine. I know the CDC changed its policy halfway through, and they do not aspirate. When you aspirate through a vaccination, you ensure that the vaccination is not being injected into uh, uh, into blood vessels, into other things it's supposed to do, just sort of muscle-inbound stuff. Could be a problem there that cause, you know, again, immune complexes to take place. But we think now that the biggest concern and why we're seeing, again, the, the evidence is now there from VAERS. The evidence is there from the FDA for 65-year-olds. We think it's there from uh, multiple articles by uh, Marty McCary, Tracy Ho, who've been tracing this for a year or more, that uh, the actual myocarditis risk for young adults, especially young adult males, uh, is like six to ten times what it is on the background rate, and that could be caused by these lipid nanoparticles that are going out in the body. Remember when we when when Pfizer had their absolute document repository, and they said to the judge, "We can give you five hundred documents a month." Someone did the math and said, "Well, that would mean the last document would be delivered like." 75 years from now, right? So the judge says, no, you'll be producing 100,000 of these a month. We get each of those batches at the end, at the beginning of the month. The next last one came out January 4th. And it showed also, I think in this batch or the previous one in November, uh, it showed that they could not account in the trials and for the uh, examinations they were doing, 50% of the LMPs. Where do they go? We, we just don't know. And I'll say just a last thing here, Mario. Um, when we look right now at the uptake of the current vaccine, the bivalent vaccine, it is hovering below 30%. That is like a far cry from where the government wants it. But I, and I don't think it's like voices like myself or Steve, I think we're having some impact, but I, I guarantee you when you look at the survey data, both by Rasmussen and by the CDC's own phone polls, you realize the significant number of people know someone who has been injured by the vaccine. Knows it by, by the Rasmussen poll, one out of four people know someone that they suspect died of the vaccine. That's what it said there. We know from the CDC's own poll that at least 8% of people uh, who said they will never get another vaccine had a very bad reaction personally about it. And so the, when you look at that uptake, when you look at the uptake of the vaccine for children and toddlers, the five-month to the, the six-month to five-year-old uh, EUA that's been approved, that's that's not even hit like 10% because people are onto this. I think there's sort of a, a bit of element of kind of a cry wolf, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss the idea that people know people or have themselves experienced 
very, very bad reactions to the vaccine. So, so, so Justin, one, one quick question on this before I go to Eugene and Lindsay, I see your hand up as well. One question. The last statistic you mentioned is, in my opinion, the least important out of all the ones you mentioned. Because um, you've mentioned a lot. I think the first few are, are for me, very important. I would like, like Eugene's take on them. Because they do show, in my opinion, uh, from what you've said, that, again, I'm not saying it's worse to have the vaccine versus having COVID. But, but I'm saying that um, at least we can, we can see that the vaccine is having some negative impact, especially when it comes to myocarditis. But the other statistic you mentioned about when people say, and Steve mentioned a similar statistic, uh, when you ask people like, have you had someone injured by the vaccine? Would you say this statistic is, you know, people make assumption or they speculate, and that's where causation versus correlation kicks in. Would you say this statistic is less important than the others you mentioned? Oh, I, I think it's definitely probably subjective, because uh, uh, a lot of it is conjecture, obviously, right? But, uh, a lot of times it's because you cannot find the path to get someone to approve and validate. Uh, I might, I know my myself, I know particularly someone who died uh, from a vaccine injury. I'm just very confirmed on that. But again, I, I have to go and go through the process of helping that family go through and identify that for sure. But that's the perception that people have. Uh, but I also mm. know, you know, when you ask people directly, I, I know the number of self-injury. If we look at the V-Safe, for example, which is a more confirmed, that is an opt-in program that um, the government has, there's a significant percentage of people who have affirmed actual injury in that. Uh, and so I, I would say that, you know, don't dismiss the idea. Uh, the experience I, think, actually, that I don't think, I don't think we, yeah. it shouldn't but be I, dismissed point, because prob- the, yeah. the, the data points are more, I think, uh, more subjective, powerful there. Yeah, but I think they're also important because it just shows you know the perception of people of the vaccines and how it's shifting over time. I do want to go to Eugene. Eugene, uh, Justin did mention a, a lot of studies, including the papers from Pfizer, and Lisa hinted that hey, it does look that they could be. Uh, we could at least say there's some negative effects from the vaccine. We just don't know how severe they are. Um, and Lisa, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Steve obviously made, made a similar point to Justin, referring to other studies. Would you say there is enough studies to show now, Eugene, that the vaccine is, in your opinion, I know your, your opinion is you've been on the panel a few times, the vaccine is still better than being unvaccinated and the, the negative impact from the vaccine is still less severe than the negative impact from COVID. But would you agree that there is um, more and more studies showing the negative impact of the vaccines? Yeah, thanks, Mario. So I would love to go through you know, all those comments that were mentioned. Um, and then before I do start that, I do want to mention that, you know, science, especially medical science, is all about looking at the strongest available evidence that is out there. And science is always changing because we're always, you know, anytime new evidence comes to light or new questions are asked and answered, um, science always has to take into account the latest and best available data. Um, so in the very beginning, when the mRNA vaccines first came out, uh, it was a new technology, right? We had only animal studies and then a few pilot studies in humans. So back then, you know, two, three years back then when they came out, there could be legitimate questions as to are the vaccines safe or not. But now look at the state of the world that we're in. More than five billion vaccine doses have been given out to billions of people. Um, at the at that scale, you would expect if there was a problem with the vaccines that there would be so many people. It would be an epidemic of vaccine injuries, um, and I just there is no evidence for that whatsoever. If you look at the largest studies in the New England Journal of Medicine, in Lancet, in all the reputable journals across the board, 
there is no evidence from any large study that there is a preponderance of vaccine injuries. So that do happen. They do happen, right? Because there's, there's anaphylaxis. There have been cases of myocarditis. And I would even mention that the regulatory agencies have been looking very carefully at vaccine injuries. Look at the Johnson & Johnson shot, right? In the very beginning, um, when they found a few rare cases of cerebral you know, sinus venous thrombosis, they, they basically gave out a warning about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. This came from the CDC. This came from the FDA. There was more caution around that. And we pivoted towards relying more on the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. So it's not like the regulatory agencies and the scientific community has been completely ignoring everything. You know, we've been extremely cautious about these adverse effects. And the adverse effects, the incidence is extremely low. Even for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I do believe the benefits still to this day, knowing the rare side effect of the, you know, the, the cerebral venous thrombosis clot, that it can happen in some individuals, the benefits still outweigh the risks, even for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, particularly so for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. And all of the studies that have been done so far have shown, like after billions and billions of doses of these vaccines given out, there hasn't been an epidemic of vaccine injuries. And just, I'll just end with this one analogy and then I'll let others you know, um, have their piece or, or give me a rebuttal. But just take something like a glass of water, right? How many people drink water every day? You know, I drank a glass of water today. Probably all of you drink water sometime in your life, right? It's a very common thing. But what if we focused on everybody who aspirated on drinking water? There are people who die drinking from a glass of water. That doesn't mean that water is a dangerous product, right? You need water to survive. When you, when you deal with the coronavirus vaccines and look at the scale of how many doses have been given, of course, there's going to be a, a few instances of people um, having an adverse effect to something at that scale. But you have to look at the larger numbers and how many people have benefited but would you, versus how would many you, people so, before, you know, have not. Go ahead, Nick. I'm sorry. So, Dr. Gu, do you believe that uh, there has been a lot of talk about younger people, especially athletes, as we've seen in the past week, um, falling over and, you know, having uh, obvious heart problems and such? Uh, and a lot of that has been blamed on the vaccine. Do you believe that this is just, uh, you know, coincidence that these are getting a lot of uh, these events are getting a lot of attention? Or do you believe that this could potentially be a result of the vaccine? And we are seeing an increase in these events for that reason. And, and to kind of add to yeah, that, that question, that's, that's Eugene, good... I'll, I'll kind of add a bit more to the same question is that Justin's reports and some of Steve's as well. Don't show like a minuscule number of, of injuries from the vaccine. They do show I didn't take notes, but a, a pretty significant increase as more and more papers are released. I think one of them was, um, Steve mentioned in 18, uh, 41. No, that's underreported. But one of the mentions about the, the amount of, um, impact it had on myocarditis, Justin mentioned some pretty significant numbers. So the largest study that I've seen, you know, that has millions of patients involved in that shows an incidence of 2.5. This is for younger males, too, the, the group that everyone looks at uh, as being the most susceptible to myocarditis, 2.5 individuals per 100,000 doses of the, of the vaccine given out. So that's a, you know, it's not to minimize uh, the instances of myocarditis, but that is very rare compared to the, when you look what, at the benefit-to-risk ratio. Of that. What about the Thailand paper, Eugene? So, like, if you look at every single paper out there in the medical literature, you can always find some paper 
agreeing with your narrative. It's like taking a quote out of the Bible. You can always find something that supports your narrative. That's why you have to look at the total number of patients involved in the study. And, there, yeah, and uh, yeah, but the quality yeah, was was better because they they looked at these people before. Opinion, Steve, no, no, it's right? not. So, so no, it's not. It's it's object. It's objective. It's not an anecdote. Into a scientific debate. It's you not an anecdote, Eugene. It's the highest quality study that was ever done because they looked at the patients before they got the vaccine. But they looked opinion. at the no it's not it's this is not from, this is not evidence. this is this is not about opinion Eugene when you look what's the study Steve what's the study what's the study this this is the Thailand myo it was a heart damage study it was done in Thailand um very easy to find if you go to my substack you type in Thailand you'll you'll find a reference to it but they they looked at 301 uh kids and they looked at and they assessed them before they got the vaccine and they assessed them after they got the vaccine. That is the best possible quality because they looked at before and they followed the same people after to see what happened. And in 29% of them, they, re- they, um, had markers of, of cardiac injury in close to 30% of those individuals before and after. That is very definitive. So, so, I see, I see, I see, I see, I see everyone, I see everyone commenting, Steve. I'll just go, I'll go, uh, Eugene, I'll let you quickly respond and then go to Lisa and Sam. Uh, so Eugene, the study that uh, Steve mentioned, which he, he says is the, the most comprehensive study on the matter. Um, I know you might say there's too many studies and there's always going to be a study that can, that, that might apply with confirmation bias. But in this case, it is a pretty, it is, according to Steve, the most comprehensive study. Yeah, Doesn't that mean something? I took a look at that study because this isn't the first time that Steve mentioned the Thailand study and had like 30 to 60 patients in, in the control group and 30 to 60 patients in the experimental group. That is a very low number of patients, especially when you compare it to the Israeli study in the New England Journal of Medicine that had millions of patients. Right. So, so how's that? The, 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 that that's not right. There are 301. It wasn't a randomized control trial. Okay. So 300 patients versus millions. So let's say I bespoke and it's not. 30 it's 300 300 patients steve is an extremely low number of patients hey hey eugene eugene when you look at millions you're looking at people who are reporting into a uh, vaccine advent reporting system like theirs see, that's where they get these that's where that's where they get these really low numbers when you follow people directly look and, and this is not just my opinion eugene you know uh, vinay prasad who is one of the most astute uh, uh, p- uh prof- he's a he's a uh, professor at, at ucsf He's, he is one of the most astute um, evaluators of these trials. And, he's, and, and, you know, when he talked about the Thailand study, and I suggest you go and, and, and listen to his YouTube commentary on this, he said, you know, the thing about this Thailand study, is, isn't it ama-? he said, isn't it amazing that a study like this, which is very high quality, is not done in the United States of America anywhere? And you know why it's not done? Because they know what the result will be, and that's why they don't do a study like this, and they rely on these these large studies where you can hide the numbers. When you have a study like this where you track the patients before and after they get the shot, uh, so there's Steve, no hiding Steve, from that data. That's your, that's your subjective opinion that a study with 300 patients is more important and higher quality than a study with millions of patients, right? 
That's not so the floor, the floor, so the floor, Eugene, the floor that you mentioned is that 300 is too small of a number. And then the floor that Steve is mentioning in the, the, the study in Israel is that it's too big of a number and there could be too many inconsistencies or, or false reporting. Yeah, the reports um, don't, the, the people can't report in. And you're, you're never in, in your millions of people, you never look at those million people before they get the shot and then measure them two weeks after they get the shot. No possible way you're going to have millions of people doing that. That's why this study was so small, because they looked at before and after, because they wanted to look very closely. Did the intervention make a difference? So, so, so known, Nelson, do you... It's a known um, scientific fact that the larger you increase the, like, the number of patients or N in the study, the, the higher quality it is, because you smooth out all the chances of coincidences and variances um, that smaller studies are prone to. Uh, right? so excuse, wait, excuse 30, me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. G- Eugene, Eugene, the BARDA study is what you're referring to, I believe. That BARDA study was funded by Pfizer, and that BARDA study, and I looked at it, that BARDA study showed that pulmonary embolism, that the rate of pulmonary embolism went down after you got the vaccine. And you're trusting that? Are you that's kidding the point. me? So, 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 that, so, that's Eugene, that's, a, that's an important point. So I've, I've, I've looked into a documentary a while ago, Eugene, in that there, there's a bit of... Um, you know, there's a lot of concerns within studies that are funded by uh, companies that have a certain incentive in the results of the study, and, and that leads to bias. Would you say – I'm not saying the study should be discounted, but would you say that that is at least a point of concern that Pfizer funded the Israeli study? Um, I think that's um, a separate but legitimate uh, point of concern is within the scientific literature – how um, do, you know? How do we evaluate conflicts of interest when when studies are you know paid for in part or in large part by pharmaceutical companies or or anyone who has a vested interest in the results of the study? I think that's a you know that's a legitimate question and something that you know can be legitimate. Could be a debated. different discussion, yeah. And, and can I just I, point I, out something something really important? Um, please do so. so I'll let, I'll let Sam this, point this out before you do, Sam. Yeah, before I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the mic yeah, before before you do, Nelson. Do you mind after Sam if I give the mic to the ladies, uh, uh, Lindsay? Tara and Joanne, uh, 100%, Joanne is that okay? 100%. Thanks, bro. Yeah, go ahead, Sam. So just, um, you know, this is a problem with social media. Steve, you're, you're actually quoting the statistics that were shared on a tweet that the Thai team then refuted, um, and, and Reuters had to effectively publish a correction. A tweet went out saying it was 30%. That wasn't true. The, the Thai team responded to say that one in 301 uh, were diagnosed with myocarditis, and, and also further people who, who said that the ECG is not a good judge of, of myocarditis in the first place. So I'm not saying that there's not validity in that study, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about the results. But Steve, you are quoting statistics from a tweet that has been subsequently proved to be false. So I think it's just important that we always go back to the source. No, 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 you're, you're misquoting me. I didn't say that 30% got myocarditis, okay? I said that close to 30% had elevated but, cardiac but risk factors after... That's not true. After... It was one in seven. It was one in seven. No, no, it's, no, it's not. Well, no. I'm reading a Reuters article that was issued by the... Top uh, you, you should read the paper. The yeah, well, okay. you should read, read the paper. Maybe Sam, yeah. If you could, if you could check the paper, Sam, and pin it, uh, pin it above. I think Steve, you might have pinned the tweet. But if you could both pin it above, and then we can, the audience can go through both, um, uh, you know, both pinned tweets. Uh, I'll go to, to Lindsay, Tara, and Joanna. I did pin um, Steve Subsack on the Thailand article. I found someone share it. So Thanks, Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Um, my um, comment was actually a while back, but I've been waiting patiently uh, when Justin Hart was discussing the 
excess mortality data around the world. I created um, one-minute clips for countries showing the um, vaccine rollout and the excess mortality and how that impacted over 50 countries around the world and made them short little clips to make it digestible, but to show what the data looked like before the vaccines rolled out or after the vaccines rolled out, depending on the country. And one, you know, there's some really weird cases where in Vietnam they had like hardly like next to zero COVID deaths. And then after the vaccine rolled out, they, they COVID deaths increase exponentially. So I, I have those on my, my page, but um, it just shows the different countries and their, their impact. And normally when you have, you know, look, if you look back historically on the epidemic charts of say the Spanish flu, you don't see valleys and peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys and peaks. Like we've seen with this COVID virus, it was one big peak that, that pulled back and it wasn't up and down, up and down. Like we're seeing right now with the excess mortality and, and data and countries around the world. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. They didn't have the, the vaccines back for the Spanish flu when that originally happened. So it just, it, it can um, really make you think about what's going on here and, and see how it's affecting, you know, countries around the world. Thanks, Lindsay. And before mm-hmm. I know that, that probably Lisa or, or Joanna will probably want to respond to this, but I'll go to Tara first. Tara, good to have you back. Hey, thanks for bringing me up. I know you got a, a large panel up here already. Um, I just wanted, I wanted to kind of backtrack a little bit to when Eugene was speaking in regard to, uh, water and the dangers of aspirating on water. But obviously we all have to drink water to survive. Um, do you believe that we need to be vaccinated to survive, Eugene? Um, it's a good question, Tara. I don't believe we need to be vaccinated to survive, but I do believe that especially on a large population scale, the more people we vaccinate, the more lives we can save. Because if you compare the risk of dying from COVID-19 itself and the risk of a vaccine injury from the vaccine, it's quite clear from the best available evidence that we have that the benefits of the coronavirus vaccines far and vastly outweigh, outweigh the minimal risks of the vaccines. Not saying that adverse events don't happen, they obviously have happened, and it's always unfortunate whenever it does happen, but it's extremely rare compared to all of those who benefit from the vaccines and the number of lives that are saved because of the vaccines. Then how do so, so, Eugene, wait, wait, how, Eugene, you know, um, UK professor, um, uh, Norman Fenton. Did, 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 yes, did, wait, wait, this is really important. This it, UK professor Norman Fenton did a um, a worldwide study where he looked at the the uh, countries and, and their vaccination rates and their excess mortality rates. And what he found was you the more you vaccinate, the higher the excess mortality. So explain to me how it is that these vaccines are saving lives when every time they're deployed, even in the United States, and, and we've seen this, I've seen the scatter plots, uh, that have been done in the United States and cities in the United States. The line goes the wrong way. It, every time you go and you increase the rate of vaccination within an area, the all cause mortality goes up. And Norman Fenton go, went in, he, he, it's his, it's, uh, the paper, you can find it as devil's advocate. Um, Norman Fenton and look for Norman Fenton devils and you'll, you'll find the paper. And he looks at all the possible reasons. Oh, did they delay medical care? Is it caused by COVID? You know, what's causing all these 
excess uh, mortalities. And the only thing that he found from all of these uh, plausible things that people have suggested, oh, it's because people are delaying medical care, it's from COVID, whatever. The only thing that had a statistically significant correlation is that the more you vaccinate, the higher the death rate. So explain to me, and that that's large data, which is, of course, the data that you love to use, Eugene, is the large data. The large data says that the only correlation is with the vaccine and not with anything else. So how do you explain that? Well, first, I'd have to take a, a careful look at that study and see, you know, what the evidence is uh, and everything. I can't just blindly take your word for it just because you're saying something and quoting this data. But, you know, for the sake of the moment, let's say that you're right and that that study is correct. You know, there's so many confounding variables and factors that could lead to an increase in, in all-cause mortality. One is that the longer that the pandemic goes on, the more people are going to get vaccinated just by virtue of how the vaccination programs work. Right. And so, like, as the time goes on in the middle of the pandemic, you could have an increase in, in all cause mortality. Right. And you incidentally find that more people are vaccinated because, hey, like during a pandemic, all the countries around the world are trying to protect their populations, you know, from the coronavirus. Right. So how can you definitively show that all cause mortality is because of the vaccines? So you're going back to the causation correlation argument, Eugene, and Steve is like there's enough evidence and the person that did the study that shows this is leaning towards causation rather than correlation. Uh, I want to go back to Tara because she had another question uh, before Steve jumped in. And then Aaron, welcome back to the panel. Uh, Tara, go ahead. It was just it was just regarding, so the CDC is now uh, saying that 80% of COVID-19 cases go undetected. So I guess what I'm curious about is how can you have an accurate count of how many uh, people even have COVID if 80% are undetected. I mean, then your studies are based on people who have died who have actually acknowledged that they even have COVID. What about the people who have COVID and don't even realize they have COVID because they're asymptomatic or they show no symptoms at all and are just carriers of COVID? Um, those people are obviously not counted in those studies that, you know, inflate the COVID deaths, death numbers, which we know were inflated regardless because people who died in car accidents, motorcycle crashes and so on and so forth uh, were, if they tested po positive for COVID, were counted as COVID deaths. Eugene? Um, yeah, just real quick, if you take a look at the math of that statement, Tara, right, um, COVID deaths wouldn't be inflated if they're more asymptomatic patients because asymptomatic patients wouldn't die. Uh, and so, therefore, the COVID deaths would remain the same. But they wouldn't right? show so up. No, they wouldn't. Because if it's if it's going off of people who have contracted COVID and there's 80% of people who have COVID, but it's undetected, then there's a huge flaw in those numbers. So, no, that wouldn't be the case. So, so the number of COVID deaths wouldn't change? The numerator on there, like the, the total number of people infected with COVID, um, that that could be underreported, yes. you know, if there's a lot of asymptomatic people, but that doesn't change, you know, the, the it changes number of the people percentage in the hospitals of who, who died. No, from COVID. it changes what you said, which is the percentage of deaths of people who have contracted or have COVID. So it does; yeah. it changes so, that, that, it dramatically that, 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 that if there's true, an eighty percent. Right? So, yeah, it, it could. It could. Un yeah, so that that would change the death rate percentage. Yeah. And then it would also, when compared to the death rate percentage of vaccinated people, that would also be extremely 
you know, uh, changed as well if you're making those comparisons. So that's why I wanted to point that out is, um, and that's another thing where a lot of cases where people believe that their family members did die from the vaccine because it's within a certain time period that they died, a perfectly healthy individual within getting that vaccine. And then when they get a, a report back, it says cause of death unknown or undetermined. So there are a lot of deaths that are happening because of the vaccines or believed to be happening because of the vaccines, but aren't being reported as well. Uh, Aaron, before you jump in, I see you're on mute as well. Uh, Joanna, you've been waiting for a while and then Nelson um, has been waiting the longest. Hey, go ahead, Joanna. Good to have you. Yeah, thank you, Mario. You know, I just I wanted to just kind of express to to everybody that that our practice, you know, in medicine is dynamic. And I think that we all approached COVID, um, you know, with with great fear and with a great sense of of what we thought we were doing the right thing. And as data is coming out, coming out, I, I do agree with Eugene. And in, in so many ways, I think we need high quality um, uh, data. Our practice is meant to be data driven from high impact journals. This is important. I think that having, you know, large sample sizes, that end value, um, you know, is is important for creating a high power study. And then I'm also hearing other panelists and I'm agreeing, you know, that that there are um, downstream sequela that that is becoming undeniable. And I, I don't know if it was Nick earlier um, or perhaps it was Sam who mentioned the the increase in prothrombotic events, for instance, pulmonary embolism and the increase in myocardial events. Um, but but again, how we practice medicine needs to be reflective of what the data says. And I think that that from my vantage one of the scariest things is the fact that this vaccine remains for many hospitals and i'm in i'm based in new york city but it remains mandatory for many many people just to be able to function in day-to-day -day life at the beginning of the pandemic you couldn't even go to a restaurant without showing that you had been vaccinated and i think that taking a step back even further from from requiring this vaccine we need to ask a greater question of how we're consenting our patients. And, you know, perhaps perhaps it's best to leave this in the court of the patient. Um, but is that... There, I, I have a qu two questions for you, Joanna. Sorry to interrupt. Is, 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 is there other vaccines that are mandatory beyond uh, the COVID vaccine? So for pediatric populations, um, to enter into school systems, I think there are many barriers if you don't receive um, certain vaccines as a child. Um, to my, and feel free to jump in, um, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if, the, if there are any other mandatory vaccines, but it's, it's very hard to navigate general life if you don't have, for instance, the hepatitis B vaccine or MMR, these sorts of things. Is it possible? Sure. Um, but is it, is it perhaps more difficult? Absolutely. Um, so, there are, the there are. The, mm -hmm. the next question I have for you, with the studies now, before we go to Nelson, the studies that, that were mentioned now by Steve, Sam, and, and uh, uh, sorry, Steve and Justin earlier. And Sam, by the way, I would love you to, to pin above when you find the study that you and Steve were referring to, just so we can compare, uh, compare mm -hmm. information. But hearing those studies, and I'm sure you've seen a lot more come out, mm -hmm. are you getting more concerned now than before of the vaccines, number one? And number two, 
Um, are you concerned to a level where you think the vaccine should not be mandatory? I think, you know, I, I had, and, and many of my colleagues, I think, you know, we had concerns to begin with, you know, and the way that this vaccine was developed, you know, Operation Warp Speed, you know, normally these are developed over the the span of 10 years. And again, I think I, I have tremendous compassion for people because I think everybody had the best of intent. But yes, you know, as more data is coming out, um, I think I think, of course, there's interest. And again, you know, collecting high quality data to drive our future decisions. But then, you know, and I and I don't want this point to be lost um, as far as patient consent goes. You have states, entire states like like California and this misbegotten misinformation bill, um, you know, 2098, which, you know, I want to be sure people are aware of. There is. There is a, a bill that was actually passed in the past few months here that that punishes physicians for, quote, misinformation. And I really think that that if this is the trajectory that we're headed down where we're not able to engage and question and grapple with with science um, and 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 communicate with our patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I'm Joseph, sorry? right after. Oh. Yeah, oh, good. So, Joseph, you'll go right after Nelson. Uh, so Actually, could I just plan. respond? Do you mind, Mario, if I just respond to Joanna very briefly? Yeah, sure. I'll let you respond. Then we'll go to Nelson, and then Joseph's been waiting patiently as well. Yeah, I just wanted to j- just confirm that I did look into, because I was very interested specifically in the mandates and, and you know, whether there was a case for them or not. And I did look into specifically whether vaccines were mandatory and whether they were mandatory for, for example, school enrollment. So I can confirm what Joanna was saying, that um, that they were not, um, with very few exceptions, and, and there were still... Um, uh, cases where uh, exceptions could be made for religious or other uh, other exemptions. This was a very extraordinary uh, circumstance. This was the only vaccine that I could find where there were no exemptions given for religious or health uh, reasons uh, in schools. So I just that could to- hopefully, uh, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if that changes and, and they become. You can see already the, the rules getting more relaxed in many countries about the. Uh, about needing the vaccines to eat at a restaurant, for example. Uh, Nelson, man, you've been waiting for a while, and, and then we'll go to Joseph. What's up, man? Mar- Mario, I'm doing good, brother. Uh, appreciate you for letting me speak. Um, Dr. Eugene, you know, much respect to you, brother, and, you know, much respect to Lisa, Joanna, and everybody else. But, I mean, it's – Dr. Eugene, so a few, few things you've said, right, especially in regards to, you know, the vaccine adverse events, right? I mean, you're citing data from, you know, the CDC – Etc. But I mean, at this point, from all we've seen over the past couple of weeks, couple of months, I mean, it's the, the this whole thing has been so politicized to the point where you don't even know who to trust. I mean, it makes it makes no sense at this point, right? I mean, we don't know who's in bed with Pfizer at this point. Like, we really don't, and I'm pretty sure you don't either. I mean, <laughs> a, a large amount of the. Po- Right, like a large amount of the population is now trying to get Fauci's head, right, based off of the new developments that we've, you know, we've received, right? So, so I, I think quoting data and citing data from the CD, especially in regards to adverse events. I mean, Do- Dr. Eugene, I-, I haven't been on Twitter as much as you guys for as long as you guys, before the limited time that I've been here and listening to all these people 
in terms of, brother, there is no way that what the CDC is reporting in terms of adverse events, there is no way that, you know, I mean, I mean, come on. It's it's way too many people. It it can't be a coincidence. I think we can respectfully disagree, but I do want to explain to, you know, both you and to the audience here, you know, how we as physicians have to practice when we have to take care of patients and we're responsible, you know, for, for, for their health outcomes, right? There's something called a standard of care that we must adhere to. And the standard of care means that we have to look at the best available scientific and medical evidence that ourselves and our peers rely upon uh, and come to a consensus about so that we provide the best quality of care to our patients, right? We can't go by an anecdotal evidence here or there, or uh, you know, there's some something trending on social media. So, what, and so what, like, what, now we have to pay attention to that. What and you're saying, Eugene? The most reputable journals and what our peers are are, are so, saying so, Eugene, in what, a consensus what, environment. What, what you're saying, your point. I'll kind of add on to what what Nelson said. So what you're saying is that. Okay, so the, uh, without discussing the, the concerns with the CDC, you're saying this is the best that we have, and and maybe it's not perfect. Um, maybe there are concerns that are valid, and I'm obviously not discussing the, those concerns at the moment, but maybe there are concerns that are valid, but it is the best that we have. But do, maybe to add on to Nelson's question, do you have concerns with the, the studies from the CDC? Like, I didn't understand the amount of corruption there is within those institutions until I started researching things like now I'm looking into the Epstein files uh, Eugene and you know I'm, I'm a very fact based person and you know I'm halfway through the documentary it's a long one it's like 8 episodes and I'm already like it's just it went way above my, my, my expectations in terms of the amount of corruption uh, that was there during those uh, proceedings so is there anything that concerns you with the studies at the CDC so, I mean, I don't or think the, the figures from the CDC. I don't think the FDA is perfect. I don't think any government agency is ever perfect. And I think it is our responsibility as American citizens, you know, not just the physicians, but everybody to always, you know, question things, uh, critically think for ourselves and take a look at the evidence. But I will say, you know, like as a practicing physician and there are other practicing physicians here on this panel, we have a responsibility to our patients and, and to follow what the standard of care is in medicine. And that responsibility comes with us having to rely upon the most reputable, largest studies and having consensus with our peers, right? Otherwise, we can all practice medicine in many different kinds of ways. You know, you can, some people will believe in vaccines, some people won't, some people will believe in, in, in this therapy, some people won't. Like, patients won't get the standard of care that they expect from their physician when they go to the office. You know, Dr. Eugene, I, I respect you. And I'm pretty sure you know that. But I mean, in my opinion, brother, based on the fact that a lot of these studies that the CDC presents goes against some of the studies that happen in other countries like Thailand, for example, right? Israel, right? A lot of these studies, when you compare them to what we have, just don't make any sense. I mean, it's in, in, in my opinion, the CDC's compromised, the NIH is compromised, Fauci is compromised. And I mean, I get where you're saying at the end of the day, but Listen, man, as Americans, we all need to ask questions constantly, especially just to finish, though, just just to finish, ma'am, especially based off of the recent discoveries that we've that have come to our attention. Thanks to Elon Musk and Twitter. I mean, we have to question. That's that's a very, very good point. So it brings me to the next question. We all are going to need medicine 
at some point in our lives. We're going to need hospital systems. We're going to need doctors. We're going to need public health. How do we build a system that you can trust? Because if we just take it apart now and say that because of what's happened with the, um, I, the, the mistrust of COVID, you take apart the whole system that has been put in place to try to make sure that the public um, gets the best access to the best healthcare possible and the best medications possible. And the, the, the companies are involved, academics are involved, um, you know, the, the government's involved in that whole process from the, when the very idea starts, I've got this drug that I think could cure cancer. And there is a whole process of what it takes to get that, mark, that drug out to make people's lives better. And it, but the it, problem it, is we didn't, the, so we didn't go is, through that so we did sorry, actually, we, we did actually go through that. It was an abbreviated way of doing that. But what I don't want to see, and, 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 and I understand your point, and I, I, I understand how people feel like it was rushed, and I, I understand why. But what my concern is, is that we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater over this, and then when it comes to something that's really, really important, we're not going to have medications <laughs> or vaccines or things like that. So we need to figure out that th there needs to be something constructive that comes out of this. And the constructive thing needs to be, how do we make these processes better? And how do we have a transparent dialogue um, that, that is based in science um, to, to make sure that we have access to, we, we, the United States had the best, had just incredible healthcare and, and, and watching it over the past 20 years, um, sort of implode is, is in my mind tragic. And so I want to see, I want to see a rebuilding of trust in how do we, we've got systems in place to address all these things. What, 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 what we do, can we do proactively to make things better? Okay. But that will wanna... require uh, an admission of a certain kind from that certain things did not work and how, you know, how that, that to regain that trust in the system, because that trust has been ruined, right? And people's rights have been sort of trampled on, specifically with the mandates and perhaps some of the reporting of, of data and things like that. So those systems need to become more transparent and, and people's rights need to be addressed in that way. And it needs to be done very publicly. And it can be a war, you know, in it. and there are certain things that people aren't necessarily able to do, uh, you know, blame and finger pointing. And so there has to be a resolution sort of from both sides that a willingness to work together. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I confirm this. I, I want to uh, uh, reply to this point before giving the mic to Joseph. Uh, I agree. I think one thing I learned when I did customer service when I launched my first business many, many years ago is that when a customer complains, even if they're wrong, just say sorry and just admit fault. They just ease up a lot quicker and they'll be more receptive for any feedback or even the truth. Like you can admit fault and then correct them right after you admit. You know, it's something that the, the book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, talks about. So yes, if uh, I think if the medical system admits to faults and there were mistakes made, and I think we all agree on that point, obviously how many mistakes, that's where we disagree. Um, it will help regain trust. So I agree with Catherine there. Joseph, how are you? 
Um, good. Thanks for. You've I, been no first. Of, yo, yo. Thanks for you, man. Like you, first time you came, <laughs> you wouldn't had to remove you from the stage twice. This time you haven't. You've <laughs> unmuted maybe twice. I'm very grateful for that. Mario, I'm sure you it was it. very difficult for you. Well, I mean, part of the reason Mario and Nelson, part of the reason why I'm so quiet is I didn't hear a word Eugene said. Best part of my day, I didn't hear a word he said. Oh, it was glitching for you. <laughs> I'm sure he muted me. No, no, he couldn't mute you. So, Eugene, can you, t- you test, test, see if he can hear it? Can you say test, test, Eugene? <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't yeah, muted I can't you. hear a word, and I'm yeah. happy about it. Oh, uh, yeah, this is, no, this is a glitch. You need to hear him. So, Eugene, I'm going to take <laughs> oh, you what? down. I'm going to well, bring yeah. down Eugene and request Nelson, to speak again, Nelson, Eugene. you got to hear I, him. Mario Nelson, I'm pretty sure he didn't have anything useful to say. So, Bro, there we go. <laughs> Dr. Lee is like, is like a firecracker. You should have seen him last night. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> He essentially said that we need water to survive like we need vaccines to survive, so it's worth the risk, uh, which you is know, and, uh, and, and astonishing applaud, to me. I mean, I applaud Eugene, you know why? Because he has an indefensible position, and he's still spouting. It's incredible to me. You know, that does take intelligence. I don't I mean more than I have, because I would never be able to take a position that stupid and make it sound okay. So you know, hats off to him for that. That's it, because everything else. So I think up. I think Eugene, I think you'll be able to hear Eugene now. Eugene, can you test I now? I removed you and brought you up. Now you can yeah, test sure. it. Eugene, Joe, say. can you hear me? <laughs> Eugene, you I have him? to know one thing. Eugene, I have to know one thing. Are you? And please don't say you are. Are you South Korean? I don't know why that would be relevant in any way. Because it like would be an embarrassment race. to my my home country. I think you're getting to some ad hominem attacks and. Oh my god. <laughs> were you, were you, were you debating him? Eugene, were you debating him yesterday? Were you debating him yesterday? Were you debating him, Eugene? Yesterday? It's okay. Dr. Lee, we have Biden, so, I mean, it's all, it's all fair. <laughs> Uh, so Joseph, I'm going to kick it off with the first question. So the first question for me is, listening to all these studies, I, I know we got very technical in the last discussion about the um, the problems with the vaccine, the risks of the vaccine. But having seen all these studies, there are a lot of studies that you know, like the Thailand study that um, uh, you know Steve mentioned. Oh, yeah. you know, I, I can't, I can't do the studies. You know why? Because this is the way science works. Let's say you have a haystack, okay? And let's say you're trying to find that needle, the answer. Without this is this is how I would do it because this is the way Eugene's going to do it. He's going to look, you know, little by little. He's going to try to go through the whole high stack. This is the way I would approach it. I would say, hmm, a needle, sharp, heavier density, less mu of friction. I vibrate that whole haystack, and then the needle is going to be at the very, very bottom, within the bottom point one percent of the total area that every other motherfucker is going to search. And that's that's all I would search, and I would find it because in science. We talk about a hypothesis. Hypothesis is actually where science starts. If you don't have a hypothesis, you're going to nonstop talk about data and you're going to be wrong. You know, Nature, the journal Nature, published an article, what, 12 years ago, the replication crisis. Half the published data in science in our reputable journals cannot be replicated. Now, what I'm saying about this COVID vaccine data, it can be replicated, but for the wrong reason. Now, if I ever sounded mad, and I'm very sorry I did, if I ever sounded mad, you know, 
you go through Sean's dad's, you know, Twitter thread, and you tell me if you don't get mad about that. You know, you know, I'm I'm a pretty decent, nice guy. I've done eighty thousand surgeries. People didn't trust me with their eyeballs because I'm a rude, obnoxious motherfucker. They trusted me because I'm professional, I'm decent, I seem very rational and empathetic and caring. I'm not on the autistic spectrum. But you know what gets me mad? When I see something like that happen. So we're going to go back to this. Everything in life that you do has to be approached with a risk-benefit ratio. Okay, so what's the benefit? So the benefit of the vaccine is supposedly a neutralizing antibody that enters your lung, binds the virus before the virus can infect your lung cell. So what do I do? I, I realized that this is a flaw. In January of 2020, in May of 2020, I tell my mentor, yes, he's only an ophthalmologist too, but he's at the top of his game. He's been the director of Johns Hopkins for at least, what, 15, 18 years in academia forever, highly respected. And when he had heard what I had to say, he goes, Joe, I think you're going to win a Nobel Prize for this. And we've kept in touch for three years. And when he had questions about different COVID issues and patients, he goes, Joe, you know what? I, I have Zoom meetings with the heads of the department at, the, at Johns Hopkins. And you make more sense than a lot of them do. Okay, so we've kept in touch nonstop. He thought throughout this whole campaign, he thought, oh, my God, Joe, I think they might try to put you in prison now. And if they do, I'll fly out from Baltimore and bail you out. Because your, your daughter... Why, 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 Joseph? Why? Why would you think that? Why would he think that? The campaign against misinformation? You know, Governor Newsom passed that 2098 bill that says that the California Medical Board can punish me if I say something negative about the COVID vaccine to my patients, which I've been doing nonstop for three, two and a half, three years. So this is the point. <laughs> Risk and benefit, okay? Risk and benefit. But then, the Joshua, one more, one, more, one more question. I know you're going to continue with the you know, a lot more to say, but why do most scientists believe that the vaccine, you know, the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks? Okay, have they heard what I have to say? No, because I was silenced. Everywhere I went, I was cancelled nonstop. So have they heard what I have to say? Because if they hear what I have to say, they'll say, huh, maybe he's right. No matter. No one has to agree with me. The only conclusion when they hear what I have to say is, hmm, we know a lot less about this than we think we do, and we should go back to the lab research bench. We should not inject this into children. That's the only only conclusion. So this is what I told Fauci. I said, look, the lung is an airspace. Our body is 7% water. Our lung don't, lungs don't fill up with fluid because it's surrounded by a blood-lung barrier. Google it. Blood-lung barrier is not a phrase I invented. You can find millions of Google hits. There's thousands of papers on it. The blood-lung barrier can stop water from crossing the lung barrier into our lung, which is why our lung stays dry. Water molecules have a size, 18 Daltons. They are tiny. COVID antibody, antibody molecules are made outside of the lung. There are 145,000 Daltons in size. They are gargantuan, and they cannot cross the lung barrier. There isn't a single peer-reviewed paper on Earth that describes an active transport mechanism that can ferry these gargantuan molecules across the lung barrier into the lung airspace, which is where COVID is infecting cells. Okay, now, before, oh, yeah. before, you, before you continue, Joseph, I'm gonna, the reason I interrupt you because you're going to be speaking for a while. You're one of our key speakers today. And these are, I saw you put a love heart while Joseph was speaking. 
Um, what did you exactly agree with? Because I thought you'd be you'd be disagreeing more with Joseph than agreeing. Or was that by accident? Lisa? That must have been hey, by accident. Hey, um, uh, so, hey, 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 by accident. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Hey, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm on a plane here. It's about to take off. Um, if you could bring Angela Wolbrecht on stage, uh, I think she has her hand up. She can tell you what's happening at UCSF, and she can tell you what's happening on the ground in front of your eyes. And, you know, Eugene talks about, about these large... I have to lead yeah, to it, Steve. Yeah, let me just make this yeah, final point here, which is Eugene yeah. said that he trusts the peer-reviewed literature and, and, and these large studies. But you see, the, the, the journals have been corrupted because anything that's anti-vaccine uh, just doesn't get published. You, you need to um, Steve, be a Steve, scientist. Have you ever heard me, Steve? Have you ever Stop. heard me? Yeah. Steve. Yeah, hold on. He'll jump up. Joseph, you'll be getting the mic for a while, yeah, Joseph. Yeah, so, yeah. Steve, I'll let yeah, you. And, and, word, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, Joseph, I, I will be calling you. I got your DM. Sorry, I haven't uh, called you. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, science is... Yeah, science, science, as Joseph will attest, is about looking at all the evidence in, in, uh, available to you, looking at all the evidence and not just what's in the peer-reviewed literature. And as a doctor, you need to look at all the evidence. And Angela, when she gets on, will tell you all the evidence in plain sight. Were but these things, if these are, if, if, I have to go the, 10 minutes too. Oh, yeah, okay. So the Please. point is that, that the ev- in ten minutes too, please. Yeah, he's finishing. He's finishing it off. He's finishing it off. Go I'm, ahead, I'm, I'm finishing it off. Okay, Landed. so the <laughs> please, ahead, please st- ahead, stop interrupting ahead, me. Okay, okay. So the the, the point is that in- you interrupted me. To Steve, you'll continue. Just you'll continue speaking. I promise. Right after Steve, the mic is yours. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Finish your point. Sorry, sorry, Steve. Um, so Angela will tell you that the evidence in plain sight for anybody that was paying attention, when these vaccines first rolled out at UCSF, there were alarm bells going off with people getting injured right after, very seriously injured, um, right after they first rolled out the shots. They should have stopped the shots immediately then, but they just ignored everything. They ignored the safety signals. There's a nurse in, at UCSD, uh, her name is Marsha Gee. Um, she was uh, w- one of the first people to get the vaccine. She was very yes, seriously you injured. Talking about the ri- all the risks, I'm telling you, if there's no benefit, what, what's the point of talking about risk if there is no benefit? If the neutralizing antibody doesn't enter your lung airspace, Steve, you're, you're, whatever you're saying becomes a lot more useful, a lot more beneficial. Risk-benefit profile. You are a venture capitalist. You understand ratios, risk over benefit. If the benefit I'm saying is zero, your risk that you're describing is a lot more useful, Steve. Do you understand yes. what I just said? Yes, Joseph. We we okay, agree. So there, there's Steve, no there's Steve, no Steve, there's no benefit there's, there's to benefit. these vaccines. But the Steve, point the benefit of the vaccine, <laughs> assuming that they let's assume their science, they so say I, it's a neutralizing Steve, I, uh, See final point, and well, then, Joseph. Will you let me? To, can I? Can I? Can I finish? Finish up, guys. Okay. See, finish your point, and I'll give the mic to you. Yeah, because I gotta, I gotta go. Like you know, in two minutes. Um, so the point is that the the evidence was very clear that people were getting severely injured from these shots. A safe and effective vaccine would never, ever, ever create the kind of adverse events that we are seeing after these shots and Angela will detail it and Angela will tell you especially for the kids the kids did had they never saw any kids uh in you know for cardiac issues 
uh, before the vaccines rolled out. As soon as the vaccines rolled out, Steve, there's there... – That's why science is about a hypothesis. So if you let me finish, I'll explain the hypothesis. Uh, so I'll, I'll, see, okay. I'll, I'll, see, I'll, I'll appreciate it. So I, Steve, thank you so much I, for joining. I, I, I appreciate you. Okay, thanks. Second, Steve, can yeah, you send yeah, me through the yeah. – can you DM me the lady you recommended? Yeah, I will. Okay, thank, thank you, you yeah, so much. Well, thanks, yeah, Steve. will do. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Joseph. Nelson. <laughs> Mario. Go ahead. Look, the guy is talking about his risk. I am giving him superpowers because of risk divided by benefit. If the benefit is zero, and I can prove it based on the science that they accept, they say that the vaccine creates a neutralizing antibody that binds the virus before the virus can infect the lung cell. And if that antibody can't enter the lung area, can't pass the lung barrier, then whatever Steve is saying becomes a superpower. But, yeah, but what you're saying, but so, so Joseph, um, you know, I got nothing but love for you, as you know. But what you're saying is, even people that have significant concerns that have been very outspoken against the vaccines, don't go all the way and 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 and, and say that the vaccine has zero benefits. So no, see, like, because Mario. You know, when I talked about the replication crisis, half the data in research can be replicated and half cannot. See, this data with their vaccine, it can be replicated, but not for the reason that they think. And that's why it's important, because when I sent Fauci that information, I said, look, Fauci, you're a neutralizing antibody that you think is the reason why there's less problems, because the antibody it binds the virus before the virus can infect the lung cell. But in order for that to happen, it has to cross a lung barrier, and this lung barrier can stop water molecules if they're Diet Cokes. Antibody molecules are small cars. Now tell me how it can cross. It can't. So if there is no benefit, then Steve's points become really big, and we don't have to worry about this stuff. And, Joe, and Joe, how does our body fight the influenza virus? And do you believe in the flu vaccine? No, I don't. Eugene, because for the sake, look, this is when I discovered this, Eugene, this is what I realized. Uh, you know, I never even thought about the flu vaccine either. But the moment I, I realized this, I said, ah, see, the flu vaccine, they had a built in excuse. Their excuse was you give the vaccine, it doesn't work so well. They're, they can always say, oh, you know, people, the variant changed on us this year. They had a built-in excuse. Now, let me explain what I said to Fauci. Eugene, I, I appreciate your tone, but in, in February 2021, when after I explained to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Belding, you're neutralizing antibody, can't get into the lung. Dr. Belding responded to me and said, um, but Dr. Lee, our data looks really good. And she said, and it can cross by transudation. And she referenced a 1985 article by Wagner that says it's less than 1%. So that point is useless. So I addressed her point that their clinical data was very good with the vaccine. I said in a 73-page letter, February 2021, with a U.S. copyright, I said, Dr. Belding, I agree with you. You got good data. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. You got good data. But you're trying to explain that good data with a neutralizing antibody in the lung. And I'm going to explain to you that that's not possible because of the blood-lung barrier. And you don't have any proof that it can get across. Let me explain. What, what you can, is a T cell? No, like, you can stop. Stop. You can start. You can or someone start calling you names. Okay. Well, it would so be hard to have a little bit of back and forth just so we can understand it a little okay, bit better. Main now. point, and then he can try. So the vaccine also has a side effect of could giving you muscle aches 
every review paper on the mRNA vaccines says that the major side effect of the mRNA vaccine is induction of chemokines by your body. Your body produces interferons, interleukins, that are antiviral. So I said, you know, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Belding, what you should have done is, I believe you're good data. What you should have done is compared the COVID vaccine to a flu vaccine. The reason why is the flu vaccine doesn't create a neutralizing COVID neutralizing antibody, but it does give you muscle aches. And if it helps, guess what? You have your answer. It's not via your neutralizing antibody. Your good effect is via the induction of chemokines by the body. You trick your body into producing chemokines that were effective. And look at the data. Look how weird it gets. J&J, you have COVID spike antigen one time. You get 50% effect because it's an adjuvant effect and you barely trick your body. Yeah, so so Doctor Gu, I'm the sure you have a lot. I'm sure you have a yes. lot to respond to that. So can we get your take on that? Yeah, definitely. So I do. Why don't we just explain to the audience the science behind adaptive immunity so that everyone? No, 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 no. No, I think I think that's. Yeah, no, I really do. Doctor Lee, Doctor Lee, Doctor Lee, can we get? Can we get? Can we get Doctor Gu's response, and then we'll let, we'll go back to you after that. We'll let you respond. Okay. Thanks, Nick. So. There's two pathways in the adaptive immune system. One is called a Th1 response. The other is called a Th2 response. Uh, you know, Dr. Lee keeps talking about neutralizing antibodies and how it doesn't cross this lung space or, or you know, everything he's talking about. I do want to mention, you know, how these COVID vaccines work so that everyone can understand from a layperson's point of view, you know, what, what Joe is talking about. So when the messenger RNA in a lipid nanoparticle goes into the cell, um, basically, it programs the cell's own no, machinery. No, no. Mario, there's, there's no, 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 wait, no, no, Dr. Lee, Dr. No, Lee, Dr. No, Lee, no, one no, more question. I'm leaving the space. No. Right, go ahead. No, so, so, Eugene, you know what? Eugene, what's the concern you have, Joseph? What's the concern with what Eugene is saying now that you have? Because he's going to review the whole thing, and this is my point. If the antibody can't cross the lung barrier, and if he doesn't have a reference to cite it, you know what he said in our private DMs? I, I'm, I'm trying to explain. You know what he said was this. He said it has a path. Eugene, you don't get to say it has a path. You have to cite a reference. You don't have one. I don't have to cite the reference. You know why? Because I'm saying it doesn't have a path. I can't have a citation for something that doesn't happen. With scientific, like pseudoscientific, like information. It's not pseudoscientific. Eugene, you said it has a path. Did you or did you not say it has a path? What's the so what's the let's go through what's the so guys? I have an idea. I have an idea. Just I have an idea. So what's the pseudo path? Provide the reference. Eugene, so, where I'm is that to reference? Exactly to everybody. No, no, no! Here. Don't it explain the whole adaptive immunity thing. We're not high school what students, you idiot. Why, why where is the reference, Eugene? If you don't have one, you're promoting a vaccine that can kill How people do you know without a benefit, one, Eugene. I can't open my mouth. You, you, you don't have one. You have plenty of time to. Re- you have plenty of time to explain that to me. Where no, is because you keep reference? interrupting me. Joe. All you said is it has a path. I don't want like, to hear anything we're, else but that reference. Guys, anything else? Like, Jen? The way that you like to argue well, and win arguments is like preventing. Oh, sorry, I was talking to myself. So, Eugene, you were saying something before I muted everyone. And then, Dr. Danish, you wanted to respond to Joseph as well before going back to Joseph. Go ahead, Eugene. Yeah, th- thanks, Mario. So, I'm going to try to make this as quick as possible. You know what? I have to leave because so I have understandable to understandable as possible. But, Eugene, who don't have why don't you tell background. the world where that reference is? And I have to leave. I'll be back. So, what's, okay, the, what's so, the concern with what Joseph mentioned they have, Eugene? Yeah, so I, I do want to explain that. And I want to explain in a way that people can understand, like normal people, even if you don't have a medical background or, or whatever. 
So when the, you know, how the coronavirus vaccines work is when the messenger RNA in the lipid nanoparticle enters a cell, it programs your cell's own machinery. There's a ribosome that makes proteins. Um, it programs a ribosome to create the spike protein for the coronavirus. That spike protein then gets expressed on that cell's surface. So let's say they inject it into your arm and it goes into your muscle cell. That muscle cell will express the spike protein on its surface, on a on a molecule that we call the MHC class one. It's you know you can ignore that name, but it's there on the surface of the cell. And then antigen presenting cells can recognize that spike protein. Um, there are T cells that recognize that spike protein. Uh, and then there are two ways in which the adaptive immune system can fight the coronavirus when it affects uh, the alveolar epithelial cells in your lungs. You know, one is there are antibodies that float around um, and they can attach to the, the coronavirus when it uh, invades your, your cells or it goes into the blood. But the other way is when the T cell, there are something called the CD8 positive cytotoxic T cells. They can recognize foreign antigens or proteins on the surface of the cell that are infected by the coronavirus, you know, pathogen, and they can then directly kill that cell so that all of the coronavirus, you know, particles and, and viruses, they're inside a cell replicating and are, are about to burst out and infect other cells. This, this, you know, the killer T cell can go recognize that and kill that infected alveolar epithelial cell before it can burst with a bunch of other, you know, coronaviruses to infect other cells. And so this is the vaccine works by teaching your body how to produce the CD8, you know, positive T cells uh, that could recognize um, the coronavirus. Also, the, the B cells that can produce antibodies that can attack the coronavirus. And so I just wanted to explain how the vaccines work, how they can still protect your body um, after the coronavirus invades the alveolar uh, epithelial cells in your lungs. Awesome. Dr. Aaron, you've had your hand up for a while. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to address uh, Dr. Eugene's earlier comments about the quality of the studies. Uh, bigger doesn't always necessarily mean better. There's many factors that go into assessing study quality. Is it prospective versus retrospective? Is it randomly sampled versus convenience sampled? Is it randomized or, uh, or not? At this point, we can't do any more randomized controlled trials of the vaccine after uh, FDA approval, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be approved by institutional review boards. So the only randomized trial, which is the best way to establish causality uh, and efficacy, the only randomized controlled trial we have is the phase three clinical trial submitted to the FDA published in the New England Journal. Uh, but we now know that that study is actually outdated. So many of the studies that Eugene has mentioned in, in many of the reputable journals were studies looking at efficacy at the peak of efficacy. But we know that efficacy declined very quickly for these vaccines. That wasn't what we initially expected when they were rolled out in early 2020. No one was talking about boosters in early 2020. Uh, but with, within four to six months, efficacy had dropped to well below 50%, which is the threshold that the FDA had set for, uh, for approval. So within a few months, the efficacy of the vaccine was lower than what it needed to, to get FDA approval. Hence, we started, we started boosting. But what we found with the efficacy of boosters is that whatever modest efficacy you may get initially, um, 
lasts for an even shorter duration of time than the initial doses. I think this is important to keep in mind because you can cite all of those old studies, but literally within a few months of the studies, or if you boost enough within even six to eight weeks of those studies, those numbers in those studies become obsolete when it comes to efficacy. Hence the need for more and more boosters. Hence this last gambit to to inject people with the so-called bivalent booster. And the reason efficacy declines very quickly, at least two of the known reasons, and there may be other reasons as well. Number one, the virus evolves too quickly for us to catch up. So, um, so even this new bivalent booster that tries to aim at the Omicron variant, uh, we're starting to see new variants that could potentially evade those so what, neutralizing what, what, Aaron, what would be antibodies. the solution, though? What would be the solution if you're constantly having that cat and mouse game? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I don't think we can vaccinate our way out of this pandemic. We're not going to be able to catch up to the new variants. And in fact, Gert Van den Bosch and other uh, very reputable virologists have raised the concern that vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic may be driving new variants, right? Because you think about what a virus wants to do. A virus wants to evade our immunity, and when you have infection-induced immunity, you get a very broad immunity, I think, as I explained last time uh, I was on this. It's more like shooting a shotgun that, that sprays out sort of in many directions, easier to hit the target. Um, many different components of the immune system forming antibodies and T-cell responses to different parts on the virus, what we call epitopes of the virus or antigens on the virus. But with the vaccine immunity, you get uh, you get antibodies just to one part of the virus, the spike protein. And that is precisely the part of the virus that continues to evolve with the new variants because it wants to invade. It, it wants, it, the vaccine wants to replicate uh, evolutionarily speaking. And so it, the, the random variants that are able to evade vaccine immunity are going to replicate more quickly because they'll be able to spread from one vaccinated person to the next. So, so, what you're saying, so, so, so what, you, what, what you're saying, Aaron, is that the, the vaccine could have an adverse effect in encouraging variants and then making it harder to, I want to say contain, but just making the virus, um, you know, get worse, either spreads more or, or have uh, more extreme symptoms. Would that be a, su- a fair summary of what you said? Because I know that Dr. T has, has her hand up as well. And Steve, Steve, yeah. has putting the, Steve is putting the emoji yeah. 100. So I think Steve agrees with you as well, Aaron. Yeah, that that's what I'm saying, and it's it's I would say it's more than a hypothesis now. It's a it's a strong theory that has a, a Listen, lot of evidence behind. It. What what are your thoughts on Doctor Doctor Lee went a bit extreme in, in saying that the vaccine just has zero benefits, and he's made the argument in the last space. I think you were there as well, and he's made it again here. Um, yeah. Dr. Donishi, I see him putting a, a thumbs down. I, I wish I wish uh, Dr. Lee's here to respond, and, and I've just sent him an invite again. But I would love your take on it anyway, and, and hopefully he's listening. So I'm trying to take the evidence that um, the vaccine advocates are presenting and, and take it at least at face value for the sake of, of having a meaningful argument and debate here. I do have concerns at this point that the, the, the efficacy or benefits of the vaccines are so modest as to be negligible. And there is also a fair amount of evidence now that that in highly vaccinated places and in people that have been boosted too many times, you can actually get negative 
vaccine efficacy, meaning people are more likely to get infected with COVID paradoxically if they've had uh, more vaccines and if a sufficient period of time has elapsed between their last vaccination and the, and the present time uh, to allow for that initial bump in efficacy to, to more or less wear off. And there's a couple of mechanisms that can account for that fact. I don't know if we want to get down into the weeds, uh, something called antigenic imprinting, uh, and, uh, I think it will get complex. I just quickly, Nick, I want to yeah. go to Dr. Danish because Dr. Danish DM me about the first point you were making, Aaron. And that's an important point for anyone listening. Like, does the vaccine encourage other variants um, to spread? Um, would love your take on this point, Dr. Danish. Yeah, so just wanted to. Uh, can you guys hear me? Your mic is a bit. Not sure if you can. Not sure if you can fix it. Your mic is a bit echoey. So maybe if you get it closer to your mouth or, or maybe stop using the headset, that could help. Yeah. Is that better? Much better. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So uh, the article that I sent you, Mario, um, that I DM'd you is from Science. Pretty decent argument. I think I think it's a fair question, Aaron. I'm not saying that's not a fair question. In fact, it was a question that we had in the beginning, right, around, look, if the vaccines affecting cor- coronavirus evolution are, are affecting coronavirus's actual evolution, uh, through selection, it's not a ridiculous question, but we have to understand how viral evolution actually works, right? So, uh, you know, if you want to induce resistant variations to some, any sort of antiviral or, you know, any t- type of drug in that sen- sense, you would actually give them, there's one big thing that matters, which is you give them a not adequate amount, right? And you keep long-term exposure, neither of which occurred with the vaccine. And that was the crux of this article. I think it's an argument. We don't have actual uh, epidemiological data to prove one way or the other, but that was the counter argument, Aaron, to the idea that these vaccines could spur or or lead to evolution. And Dr. Danish, another question for you. I don't know if you heard all the studies that were mentioned earlier, but there are studies, uh, you know, supporting both arguments that are being made. And and then we had an argument before, which study... Um, you know which study is more credible and should we trust? With 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 so many studies with conflicting results, um, has your perspective of vaccines changed? And and would you say to anyone that is vaccinated, is there reason to worry that there could be adverse effects of the vaccine long term that we're not aware of yet? I'm not concerned. My entire family is vaccinated. I think it's a fair question in the short term if there's an adverse effect with your specific vaccine maybe an allergic effect, or even if you're in that age group, maybe perhaps myocarditis and uh, young men potentially, right? You, you have to worry about those things. And I think it would be foolhardy for any doctor not to worry about them. I think it's a completely fair question. Um, the conflicting studies actually are very level, different levels of evidence. I'm just going to say what I think. And then, you know, I think the evidence, the level of evidence actually does matter. So I heard Aaron say earlier, well, smaller studies, don't matter. Well, it, it, you're right. What matters, I actually agree with you 100%. I actually don't care if a study is in JAMA or in something else, but I do want to be able to see the level of evidence. And levels of evidence range from systematic reviews and meta-analyses of high-quality studies. That second part is kind of more important than the first, right? So you can do a meta-analysis of crappy studies. And meta-analysis, just for people that don't know, is a fancy way of saying you take a bunch of different studies take their populations, and then evaluate them as a totality. And there's a lot of different tricks that we use. There's a very good protocols to be able to do that effectively. 
but if you know garbage in garbage out you take crappy studies and put them together you get crappy data so ultimately they have to be meta analyses of high quality studies that's the highest level of evidence and then you know randomized control trials double blinded and all of the other ways that we remove bias is critical so to try to act like a small retrospective study that uh is done in a bias sample is equivalent to a large uh randomized double blind control trial and then you know additional uh uh you know uh data that we have now on the vaccines i think it's just not the right approach are we concerned so, so- about the vaccines sure i'm i'm always concerned about any drug you give to any of our patients i think that would be again a bad doctor does not uh, believes in the narrative but ultimately we have to also look at the evidence if there's high quality evidence that speaks otherwise happy to learn more about it but every evidence that's been shown for early treatment for example uh certain early treatments work incredibly well and they're actually not the ones that people thought they were going to be uh you know uh, fluvoxamine metformin there's other ones that are working really really well and we should use them in clinical uh, in clinical care and so you know th- this is the stuff that i think it forget about the zealots and the religious nature of all of this uh we just have to look at the evidence and do the right thing for our patients uh, i've got one yeah. question for all panelists before i go i've got a question uh, a few questions for eric eric appreciate you joining the panel again uh, good to have you um the question i had prepped for all panelists is um um a point that was mentioned by i think it was steve if a, if a study was funded by pfizer would that pour, bring more questions and and could that you know hurt its credibility Yes, I think absolutely. I think, you know, I think that, you know, if you have funding from a source that stands to gain, that that very much creates um, uh, it it casts doubt on on what the results and findings may be. Eugene, that's the study you referenced, the Israeli study. Would you agree with I think you mentioned as well, like, you you know, it's it's a valid question. That's what you called it, Eugene, Um, but would still be credible enough for you to reference, correct? So, I mean, I think that any study that's funded by um, any kind of entity that stands to benefit from the results of the study, you know, that's that's a legitimate question to ask. Um, and, and that's always a legitimate question. So, um, I mean, that's all I would have to say on that. It doesn't completely invalidate the large studies, but if anyone has any, you know, debate about conflict of interest, how pharmaceutical companies, biotechnology companies fund the various studies that they stand to benefit from? I, I know I think that's a legitimate question. Eric, I want to go it, to, to you with a... So, so go ahead. Yeah, Mario, this also complicates the, the levels of evidence kind of hierarchy that Dr. Dan was mentioning earlier because the only studies, uh, I mean, the only entities capable of funding randomized controlled prospective trials, which are supposedly the gold standard of research, are pharmaceutical companies, or occasionally the NIH will f- will fund these trials, uh, looking at, at old generic drugs. So that, that, that no could that could pay. lead to a to to a pretty serious conflict of interest yeah, industry wide so that, that, beyond COVID. That leads to that leads to a problem, and and that also explains why a lot of the push for what's been called evidence-based medicine, which who could disagree with practicing evidence-based medicine, but the framing of evidence-based medicine has often been done by entities funded by pharmaceutical companies uh, in order to say, look, randomized controlled trials are the only thing that doctors should look at, or, you know, in the absence of that, you can't draw any conclusions. That's, 
that's really problematic. And it's especially problematic for these vaccines now because we're never mm-hmm. going to get another randomized controlled trial. Uh, there's questions about that phase three trial based on whistleblowers. Brooke Jackson in the United States, a guy named Augusto Rue, who was is a Supreme Court a lawyer who works in the Supreme Court uh, in Argentina. And Argentina was the, the largest uh, clinical trial site for the Pfizer vaccine. They do, they do a lot of studies down there because they have a lax regulatory scheme in that country for clinical trials. Um, and so we're not going to get another randomized control trial. And the whole question of efficacy is really complicated by the fact that most people have had COVID now. And so mm-hmm. you get you get all kinds of people being put in simplistic vaccinated versus unvaccinated categories. Um, and it's not clear, did they have COVID before or after they got vaccinated before or after they got boosted? All of those factors uh, can likely change our immune response and our level of immunity to so, new so, variants. So it seems, it seems, you know, getting more studies over time is the best way for us to get answers as we're, we're just all very polarized. And, and I want well, to go to a question to, to Aaron, if you don't mind. I just want to ask Eric a quick question that I prepped. Eric, like I've, I've done a few of these spaces and, and they seem to still be the most demanded spaces, uh, almost every day. Why? Like what led to such a polarization? Um, and, and then what's your stance on the topic? What's your stance on the vaccines? Are you vaccinated? Uh, sure. Thanks for having me up. I am vaccinated. Um, assuming it's even a vaccine. I think that of, of course the issue is that we don't understand what just happened. And one of the things that I would say is that some of us were worried about public health long before COVID. Uh, I think I've gone so far as to say that I'm opposed to public health. And what I mean by that is that the culture of public health from a scientific perspective, is a monstrosity. It's a combination of good science and care about the population and a desire to protect us, which has to be there, because these are things that challenge any libertarian notion. If, if uh, the right to swing my fist ends at the tip of your nose, what do you do with a respiratory virus? What's my right to breathe? Those problems uh, are really badly handled for a world with smartphones, search, social media, and the ability to compare notes. So one of the questions that we don't ask ahead of time, prospectively, let's take the next pandemic, not this one, some new virus we've never seen before. I guarantee you that that virus is going to require a certain level of simplification because when physicians talk to non-physicians and scientists talk to non-scientists, There's a huge gulf in knowledge. And then you have this really big disagreement, which is what is the public entitled to know? So, for example, if you remember at the beginning of this, we had an issue about masks. Please don't use masks. They might make you feel better. But what we really need to do is to realize that they might even make you sick. And uh, the only people who might need them are actually frontline professionals. Um, That was pretty clearly a screw up on our part, because we failed to replenish PPP during a previous uh, health emergency, and then we had to cover for it by telling people not to use the scarce commodities, having offshored our supply chains to China. What we find out afterwards is that a lot of people were very comfortable. Of course, that's what we said, because we had to say something because we we had an emergency. 
And a lot of other people were extremely uncomfortable. They said, we can't afford to lie to people like that because it breaks trust. So I think one of the things that we're, we're divided by is a practicality. Uh, if a lie is in fact noble, forgetting perverse incentives, how do we feel about public health simplification and the culture of the noble lie? That actually divides us before we get to Pfizer or Moderna or COVID-19. So I think one of the things that's going on is that we all went through the same medical nightmare, meaning that if I usually have a problem with my lower back and you have a problem with your prostate and somebody else is having a problem with fertility, we're not all going through a worldwide common affliction. As a result, what we've seen is what happens when you get a lot of non-physicians suddenly aware with lots of smart people and lots of dissident physicians who are, dis who are divided about whether public health or mandating vaccines or any of these things are good ideas. And I think in a certain sense, this has nothing to do with COVID, Moderna, or Pfizer. What it has to do with is the culture of statecraft that is depending on public narratives. So you had a public narrative here, which involved, let's say, completely egregious breaches of collegiality. You cannot label a, an epidemiologist from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford getting together as fringe epidemiologists to make your problem go away. I, I think that's grounds for scientific excommunication, in my, in my opinion. Uh, so Francis Collins... And, 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 and Anthony Fauci are very clearly people who were very comfortable with the instantiation of institutional science extended into the public health realm. I think what's dividing us is that there was no consensus going into COVID about what you are and aren't allowed to do to simplify a response led by the state that demands effectively participation while pretending that it is not seeking to coerce everyone into a common option. So, so I know, Nick, you've got a question, but just based on what you said, Eric, there's two interesting points that I wrote down. One thing is, is there such a thing as a noble lie? And the second one is, states are too dependent on public narratives. So I want to go to the first one. And it's a very difficult question. Being in their shoes and, and assuming everything they said is true and what we know now, if you were in that position, they made a mistake and if they don't lie, you know, more people could die. Is there such a thing as a noble lie? Um, you should look at what happened around D-Day, when in order to defeat the Nazi menace, we had to have enormous operations that weren't D-Day, but were in fact giant lies. There's no question that the, the necessity to dip into half-truths, obscure, obscurings of the truth, and even out-and-out -out lying has been necessary at various times for various purposes. So one of the problems that we're having is, is that we have people who have perspectives like lying is bad. Anything that's simplistic should not be allowed in an adult conversation. We can't have a discussion, is it ever okay to tell a noble lie, when we already know the answer. Now, I happen to hate these noble, noble lies, and I think that they've been practiced badly and very dangerously and stupidly. But even I, who, who might be completely delusional, do not believe that you can get through uh, modern statecraft with constantly being transparent. And one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to tell people, you do not get to have an opinion 
on every subject that is relatively complicated, that is incredibly simplistic and well-tailored to spread through the internet. Like, I think lying is bad. Of course, there have to be noble lies. What was the second point? States are too dependent on public narratives. This is an, an interesting one. Assume that you're right for the moment, okay? We don't know how a state proceeds through with statecraft, particularly a leading superpower, without narratives. And what that might mean is, is that the nation state does not survive the smartphone, which is pretty interesting. What it might mean is that the concept of a modern narrative has to change. The state is okay, but that the problem is that what, what narratives worked before can't possibly work now. Or we may have a leveling up of the population where we can understand nuanced narratives, or we may have to have a rebalancing with trust where we get rid of these people who've been with us forever and who don't seem to be able to shoot straight. And we get some people who are not bogged down by, let's say, being in the same job for nearly 40 years. So I'm just trying to understand with people getting all these different mixed messages, and then you get people that are very well spoken, making a point that could sound very legitimate, yet the person listening, and I'm not using, I'm not talking about COVID, I'm just talking in general, the person listening is convinced, you've heard of the saying that um, on a table, everyone listens to the best speaker, not the scientist. So the way you articulate something will have more impact than whether that thing is, is true or not. So then for the audience, when, when we're fighting against censorship, including myself, and, and, um, and, and I think you stand, on that, you stand on that side of the ship as well. If you're fighting against censorship, what can the audience do to differentiate between facts and misinformation? Well, first of all, you, the, the audience has to figure out that a lot of the people on stage do not know that they've been uh, subjected to misinformation, disinformation, and now thanks to the Department of Homeland Security, my favorite, malinformation, things that are true but are bad. <laughs> so part of what's going on is, is that you've got a ton of physicians, nurses, very uh, smart people who have domain expertise subjected to all sorts of weird kinds of disinformation coming from places like The Lancet, which is combining high-quality uh, medical reports are together with politics and statecraft. And so this unholy mixture has left many of us confused. And what you were saying, and I, I think there's a great point that you're raising here. We've, we've got a culture now which says, I know that I don't know enough to adjudicate something about spike pro, pro, proteins or pro, uh, furin cleavage sites or anything like that. I just want to hear the two leading people go to war in front of me because the one thing I do know how to do is to detect changes in tone. If I was watching it visually, body posture, who averts their gaze? So what we've adopted without anyone really noticing is a cult of octagon-level uh, simplification of complicated issues. You get two people into a battle, and you try to see who acts like a coward, who acts heroically, who appears to be confident. And that's part of it. the problem, is that there's some people who can act confident when they're lying through their teeth and losing. So now you have this, this extra weird thing, which is the public now knows that it can't trust even nature or the Lancet. So what it's gone to is it's gone to a coliseum. Let's put people who hate each other, who don't agree with each other, have them yell at each other, and then let's try to use indirect cues from what we're hearing 
to detect who we think is probably most right and most on our side. And that's a very dangerous shift in what was previously a scientific, rational culture in which one of the, one of the gems of our process is that we scientists conceded when we were shown to be wrong. It's like playing touch football or a pickup basketball game where you don't have a referee. Each side has to call fouls when it fouled. We've stopped doing that, and what we now have is it's all going to be Thunderdome. The reason that this works is that the, the public wants Thunderdome to figure out who's lying and who's telling the truth. So, so that you kind of lead to another point, and and you know these are selfish questions from my end. Is uh, even me? I'm at a predicament now where it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a fight between education and entertainment, because what I've seen is is not only on on Twitter Spaces, of course, on various platforms, is that hosts or people or shows will will start discussing things that will get the audience, even if they're not factually correct. They'll get the speaker that speaks. That, that, that has the best tonality or that is the most entertaining even though the information they are sharing is just inaccurate and then it kind of leads to a point that you've made is when you put two people to fight with each other it's no longer about fact it's about who's a better debater and then it makes it personal so the other person will is unlikely to concede because then they're seen as a as as being wrong them on a personal level how how, how like for someone like myself how can i Tackle this while I do have to have an audience, so it has to be entertaining for the audience to come to the space. While at the same time, I have to keep it factual. I have to stick to 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 the right information, and even if it's an entertaining speaker um, that the audience loves is saying something wrong, I have to you know correct them or point out that mistake or have another speaker point it out. Then that might insult the speaker, and he might not speak on stage. It it does lead to a predicament right now with the, with uh, and kind of you, you alluded to it earlier with whether smartphones will uh, how states will deal with smartphones, which I think you mean is how quickly information spreads and how difficult it will be for states to control it. Where do you see us in ten years with those predicaments? The the thing that is either going to happen is, is that we're going to go farther and further into uh, social media smartphone culture where everything is Thunderdome and we decide and adjudicate what's happening in Ukraine, who Jeffrey Epstein was, what's going on with the vaccines, uh, having lost mainstream media to play the role of referee, we, we're going to just do this all the day. Uh, and in this case, to be blunt with you, you can't stop misinformation. Your spaces are going to misinform. They're going to have disinformation. People are going to use them to promote their books or their supplements or who knows what. Uh, the issue that you can what, – what you can do is you can simply try to minimize that. There's no way to get rid of it. We, we, we're trying to keep you under a budget so that the amount of harm that you do is overwhelmed. The, the concept, uh, hypocritically, of first do no harm is wrong. It should be something like first do no net ex- expected harm. It has to be taken balanced, and it has to be taken uh, from a, a point of view of probability. So as long as you're doing these spaces – and on balance, making the world a better place by them, I think you shouldn't worry about the idea that some harm creeps in. You're going to create harm. I don't know that I haven't spread disinformation or misinformation inadvertently. Uh, whether What's the long term? The long term should be that scientists should get out of the lying business. Uh, we, we're not here to make the IPCC look good. Uh, almost certainly we're affecting the climate of the earth and almost certainly we're also ex- exaggerating the science and the clarity 
with which we say that we know what, what what's going on. And I think that this concept of exaggerated clarity um, or any of these kind of workaround programs, like if you have an EUA and you want to trigger it, but you have something that might be therapeutic, uh, the, the, the person in Washington, D.C., as opposed to Cambridge, England or Cambridge, Massachusetts, says, okay, make sure that uh, there's no trace of a possible therapeutic, otherwise we can't use an EUA. Uh, the scientist says, well, wait a minute, you can't go backwards and decide that there is no therapeutic. You have to go forwards and say whether there are possible potential therapeutics, and then you take the consequences and change the law if you want to. So the conflict between those two cultures would be much better elucidated. And what you should be doing, in my opinion, I don't mean to tell you your business, is hold a space on something like noble lies in general. Because one of the most frustrating things many of us encounter is that we spend all of our time trying to prove that we're being lied to. When we finally get the proof, the institutions say, of course we were lying because we had a problem, we didn't have enough masks. You're, you're thinking, so wait a minute, we, just, we wasted six months arguing about whether you were lying, you knew you were lying, and you just think it's fine and you think the rest of us are idiots for bringing this up as a trust or credibility problem. I think it's much more important to ask journalists what do you perceive your obligations are within journalism? To ask journal editors, what do you think you're allowed to do when Peter Daszak and uh, Anthony Fauci tell you that we have to synonymize uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology hypothesis with racism? I think it's much more important to understand that the culture of institutions contains provisions for lying and misleading from a position of authority because of a belief that there is an elite class that is entitled to pursue the public good above the heads of the benighted people who happen to have passports and live in a particular country. It's very important for us to gain clarity about exactly what do you think your rights are to spread mis- and disinformation, or, for example, detail men in the pharmaceutical industry. Why is it that we find out late in the game how pharmacies get doctors to prescribe drugs. Would we feel comfortable if we understood what our physician was subjected to economically? I think it's much more important that we, we move away from COVID-19 and we move towards a culture of asking, what are the tacit assumptions of our expert and professional classes with respect to fidelity and how they represent their knowledge to people who are not technically educated? Thank you. I've got another question. I don't know how long you have, Eric. I've got another question from the audience for you. Um, you know, and, and uh, Patrick, but David, who's been on stage a few times, he said one thing in an interview. He said, um, "You know, I'm not a doctor. I don't understand all these different terms being used. But there's one thing I noticed is that whenever, you know, whenever I ask someone, uh, a doctor that supports the vaccines to come on my show, they refused. I've even offered to pay them ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. Yet people that oppose vaccines they were coming to me and wanting to speak and that was a big warning sign for me is that a fair is, is that a fair conclusion that doctors that support vaccines them not speaking out means they have something to hide versus doctors that uh, you know have you know concerns with the vaccines being a lot more open and we have the same thing here on the space um any any doctors that has concerns with the vaccine it's a lot easier to get them to come speak any doctors that support the vaccine, it's very hard to get them to come and debate um, um, yeah. the other side. 
it's completely unfair. Um, here you'll, you'll hear a rare thing, Eric standing up for the establishment. But if I have to say, look, doctors have to be allowed to lie, um, people are going to freak out because the idea is lying is bad. So if I, if I have to say as a physician, which I'm not, uh, doctors have to be allowed to color the truth, to guide um, that there's a reason for expert representation. That's going to come across as high-handed. I'm going to be told that I'm an elitist. I'm going to be told that I'm part of the problem. Uh, that's not a fair burden. Um, anybody who says that lying is just bad, for example, needs to be thrown off stage because it's just not true. It's obviously not true. The problem is I do believe that many of the people who are supporting the establishment line are establishing a really bad – they're supporting a very bad narrative. This wasn't just a narrative that wasn't exactly true. It was a narrative that was threadbare. It was transparent, and it exploded under any kind of scrutiny, um, which doesn't tell us really a lot about whether the vaccines were on balance, good, bad, whether they were vaccines, whether this originated uh, at the Institute or not. So my feeling about it is the populist thing is going to favor heterodoxy. And the expertise, the expertise, the expert institutional community has good reasons for avoiding you, which is that they have to say real things that don't sound good in public and bad reasons for avoiding you, which is that they're cowardly going along with a narrative, which is clearly uh, immoral, offensive, uh, and not adult quality. I, I've lobbied for adult level fiction. Uh, these narratives have to be adult level. This was not an adult level narrative. The, the spinning, the turning around, the lying was so transparent. The horse dewormer campaign. Uh, it, it's a textbook study in why early 20th century public health cannot survive the smartphone and why it should never be practiced again. And my feeling is you cannot take as evidence establishment doctors being unwilling to come on uh, such a program. Now, you can say that if you set rules so that there wasn't an unfair populist bias, because the population is so sick of being lied to, we have an idea we're entitled to perfect truth, throw the bums out, uh, there shouldn't be any certification. There's sort of a libertarian attempt to throw off an expert community. And I have to say, we do need our experts, but we need our experts supplied with some sort of understanding about what the bounds you can ask. And you can't ask this many smart people to sit down, shut up, or have their Wikipedia entries destroyed because Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins and Peter Daszak are completely out of control. So, Eric, at what point, because uh, you said that you do believe that there are some circumstances under which, you know, the noble lie is justified. But, you know, under what circumstances do you think that noble lie is uh, justified and who gets to decide that? And what what is that justification and how do you prevent that from, you know, falling to bad players? Because I'm sure that under these circumstances, you know, even when what you say, you know, this, these are the wrong circumstances uh, or those are the bad decisions and those are the good decisions. But somebody, I'm sure, thought those were good. And does that not take away, uh, hum- you know, personal domain, you know, personal decision making uh, from individuals when they're sort of lied to because and 
kind of puts the idea of, of a godlike ability to predict consequences in the hands of, of certain individuals when they make those decisions, and they could be wrong. So we should be, I, nobody should be asking me in particular as an authority, because I don't know. What I do know is, if you and I were to be invited to a space called the noble lie, when is it, when is it uh, warranted? Um, that would be a really interesting discussion. But there would be a bias in it, which is that everyone claiming it's never warranted would be expected to be boosted over everyone with a more nuanced perspective. This has to do with shelling points. As soon as you say, I hate lying, it should be very rare, but there are cases like D-Day when you need to, to deceive for the greater good. Um, you're going to find that people are going to say, well, who gets to make the decision? And why haven't you robbed me of agency? And all of that kind of stuff. So that pushes everyone to the shelling point of no lying ever. And I don't believe that anybody on the stage has never lied or has never lied with good reason. So you have this problem that populism that plays on social media has this very weird bias towards shelling points that can't actually be implemented as policy. So, for example, open borders and closed borders are the two most popular immigration positions. But they're also the two immigration positions that are never taken seriously whenever immigration is considered because they're both idiotic shelling points. The fact that every other thing is an arbitrary number or an arbitrary scheme that can be adjusted up or down tells you that people accumulate at the shelling points. And what people are going to do is they're going to accumulate at the beautiful shelling point that says, no experts telling us we deserve full transparency, all information, all the time. Everybody's equal. And that's not workable. And I don't know what to do about this, but I'd love to attend a Twitter space on that. Thanks. I'd be, I'd be too scared to do a Twitter space like this. I know, Catherine, you have another question. Oh, I'd be too no, scared because to of, Yeah, but no, the, the only issue I would, I would be worried about doing is, Eric, the, the point that you've made is that it's just very easy to say the thing that will that people will like and that will make you popular versus the thing that you believe is true. And that makes it very tricky. It's very easy to say lies should never be okay. But it's a lot more complex than that. Um, and that's why I'm like, there's some topics that I'm a bit, you know, I, I kind of worry about hosting and talking about. It's definitely one of them. It will take a lot of preparation. But sorry, it's Catherine, you had another. It's the damage or the lies. So, yeah, no, it would be an interesting conversation. Sorry, go ahead. Catherine, well, yeah, maybe question. we should do. Yeah, maybe we should do that conversation. I think it would be very, very difficult to to define that, like that that moment, and and as such, that becomes very difficult. But my other question is, you know, when we have these spaces, and specifically when it comes to something like COVID, for example, the difficulty that I have is that you have people on stage, and they might be MDs or they might have other kind of expertise, but you're dealing with a topic that's very, very complex. And how do you sort of balance because you know as a lay audience and I'm a lay person in, in this particular specialty and so I'm listening to this stuff and it can get very very deep and how you know and evaluating the expertise of two people kind of back going back and forward I think it's challenging for for an audience as, as smart and clever and well researched as they may be I think it takes some some of these things I think it takes you know minimum of 15 years of thorough study to understand and so how do you ensure that there is like, you know, the right kind of match, the right kind of, you know, equal sort of representation of, of ideas and understanding that's kind of going, you know, in, in sort of a debate context? It doesn't work right doesn't now. Okay, let, me, let me just read one tweet that came in while we were talking because it's, it's indicative. 
Not once or twice, but four times, Eric R. Weinstein justified lying, even by doctors. Yes, Eric, you are part of the problem and straddle the fence in areas that best benefit you. So yes, you are an elitist. Thankful for Brett Weinstein. All right. This is why <laughs> it does, there's just nothing you can do. I described the problem. I described the shelling point. I described the fact that it's obviously beautiful to say nobody should ever lie, right? Well, there's no way to beat it. It, it, it. We have to recognize that we're not going to win that battle. But once we get past the simplifications, right, it's like it's not that the person said, um, Eric, you know, I found your D-Day point really interesting. I'm going to have to think about it more. It's just what plays on social media has a bias for what are the simplified shelling points that make us feel instantaneously best about ourselves. And the difficult problem of how to balance how much money to spend on people and triage and all of the really difficult things have been hidden from the public. So we tell the public we always have your best interests at heart, and we don't explain all the codes in the hospital and the triage systems and how much care costs and why its billing is so bizarre. And so what happens is that the public has two separate notions of a, of a hospital and doctors. One is this beautiful thing that just wants to heal you for the good of its heart. And the other is this crazy bureaucratic extractive extravaganza where the people who have information, the agents, do not take care of the principles, so you have a principal-agent problem. When we start having more spaces that have nuance built into them and where it doesn't immediately cause you a loss to say the truth because there will always be somebody saying something simpler and prettier than you are, that's when we start solving the problem. We haven't solved the problem well, that, that, of how to design those spaces. That one not happen. I, I just, I genuinely I, don't think it's, it's just goes against human nature, in my opinion. But well, I think we can incentivize we this, perhaps. Yeah. I think we can build sense systems to incentivize it. Yeah. And I'll just say, Eric, to one thing is I'll say, but this is because, someone, but Catherine, doesn't that become censorship? No, 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 no. We incentivize it. That's not censorship. That's but rewarding it. But that, that yeah, rewarding no. one side could be, yeah, true, true. I understand what you're Not rewarding one side, rewarding a different system of, of kind of thinking about fair, it. Fair, fair, yeah. No, yeah. I and I'll just to... say to Eric Sorry. that um, as somebody who wrote an article specifically called Noble Liars and Noble Lies, um, or Virtuous Liars and Noble Lies, I'll, I'll still say that um, I will think about the D-Day, and I appreciate your point. <laughs> I wanted to, uh, Eric, if it's okay, uh, Mario, uh, Eric, I wanted to go back. So this is Danish. Uh, I wanted to go back to your commentary around nature and Lancet and around narratives and conclusions versus, you know, uh, and, and how they're being used and, and potentially uh, ineffective ways. I, I, I'll tell you, first of all, you know, I've submitted multiple papers there and have had multiple papers rejected. So I have no love lost for nature. But um, uh, as many of the people may uh, may have the same situation but i have to say that if we can't rely on our core evidence then we have nothing to rely on and ultimately my question is around couldn't we solve this uh evidence to conclusion sort of valley of death if we just open source the data so if people couldn't just submit papers uh that fit quote unquote the narrative but instead had to prove it with their actual primary data and their evidence itself, couldn't a lot of this uh, issue go away? And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand what a real solution to this would be. If all evidence can be made up, 
then we have nothing to rely on. What are scientists and doctors like myself supposed to rely on if we can't even rely on the evidence to begin with? It's an interesting problem. Yep. If, you, if you look at the medical literature, it is famously heterogeneous in method, in quality, in size. You'll have some study which has a study of eight women in some Korean clinic and some other study with you know, 15,000 people tracked for decades. And the idea about how to weight them, integrate them, how to figure out the methods, how to pry data out of a PDF, there's so many bizarre issues that happen, particularly in medicine, that I don't know how we start dealing with very heterogeneous authors' data and analyses um, because the human body in particular is so many, you know, tens of thousands, if not more, uh, independent and interlocking systems that it's very hard uh, for us to say, you, you can mumble evidence-based medicine, and we do have only the scientific method, but we also have a fair amount of intuition based on theory. And I'm always really struck by how people today say, well, I'm strictly evidence-based because they feel that theory in the hands of bad actors has led them astray. I think we're going to have to hybridize something where we standardize the medical literature a great deal more. We're going to have to come to some understandings about what we expect from physicians, because right now I think what we're doing is we're setting physicians up to be heroes, and then we knock them off a pedestal. And it's an extremely offensive way of dealing with people who are trying to do the right thing and put in impossible situations. Um, I do think we have evidence to guide us, but part of the problem is we don't have a consensus as to whether or not the most powerful people in science in the National Academy complex and at the journals should be in this level of control uh, of coming up with a simple-to-follow narrative that is disseminated by Stephen Colbert in, a, in song and dance numbers or featuring Ariana Grande, which I bet we're going to find out was publicly funded. We, we've got to actually recognize that when you tell people, please listen to Ariana Grande uh, and Bill Gates, but don't listen to Brett Weinstein because he's not a, a physician, nobody knows what that means. Nobody knows how that works. And this sort of uh, failure to recognize that people who are trying to follow the game for first principles and don't have any heterodox acts to grind are beginning to realize that there's just a grab bag of tricks that haven't needed to be justified that suddenly do because we're now in possession of much more information. Yeah, but, but think, think about this for a second. You're talking about the heterogeneity of, of this issue. I mean, we, we have, we've got a, a sphincter <laughs> that has closed over time of, uh, of people who are authorized, whether by implication or in actuality, to be able to validate uh, all these different points of, um, of entry that are being attempted to, to get more information out, to, to get more science there. I mean, I, I think the restriction of uh, th this, this self-imposed, sometimes governmentally imposed in certain cases and, and, and in other fashions, uh, uh uh, you know, uh, you know, a group of people who are allowed to make these judgments, I think is a real problem. I mean, uh, there's a lot in, in an open, a more open source approach, just to get to Dr. Dinesh's point, a more open source approach 
uh, allows people who may not be the prime experts, but actually have the the ability and the function of deductive reasoning, uh, even if they're not experts, the experts on the in inductive what? side, to be able to be to participate and help no, with this. I, I, yeah, but I think the the problem is if you have an EUA problem, right? And you have workaround culture that says we have to make sure we don't trigger the therapeutic out for the experimental uh, drug that we want to administer. Then you have a situation. Let's assume that you have something that has minor signs of being a, I don't know, minorly effective therapeutic. Somebody who's the expert in that may be regarded by a public health expert. like, oh, my God, we've got some rube wandering around Washington talking about some marginal benefit of ivermectin. And they're going to screw up the entire thing because they don't understand that unless that has no benefit, uh, we've got to effectively shut down this whole program. The question is expert in what? We have public policy experts, people who are expert in getting things through, who might be called field mechanics or field accountants in another field, people who show up on a, on a war field and figure out how to cannibalize helicopters to keep people flying, or how do you pay off the local officials? The culture of getting things done in Washington will curl your toes if you've never seen it before. So you have a scientific expert sitting, let's say, in Kendall Square at MIT, and you have somebody else who's an expert on the mall trying to round up support for something, saying we really have to drive this ivermectin thing into the ground, even if it has some uh, possible benefit. Those two experts are not expert in the same thing, but they're fighting over exactly the same issue of a protocol. You know, your point about uh, the politics in Washington is well taken, having spent some years running that that uh, gambit. But in, is it the problem then uh, that we've injected that, that what, what you described accurately as the political problem back in to the area of research and that and because we're throwing money from the government into it because, and, and other inputs? That, that have turned all the scientific community on its head. And now, if you're in that community, you have to run the political milieu to even be effective or to get anything worthwhile done. Yeah, my, my take on this very, is very, very clear. When you have to destroy Jay Bhattacharya, when you have to destroy Brett Weinstein by reputation, when you have to do all of these things to trigger your EUA, you have to understand that you've lost the portfolio that had the mandate to carry out statecraft. In other words, part of the requirements of statecraft is not destroying very smart, critical thinking people who in public take you to task for your questionable assumptions. And I think that what we should have done at some point is to recognize that the EUA thing is the problem and the Biological Weapons Convention is likely the problem. This thing with uh, DAGIC and EcoHealth is probably to do with a uh, biological weapons convention workaround and the ivermectin thing is having to do uh, we have to destroy anybody who supports it so that there is nothing so we can trigger the eua for the vaccines i think that the right thing to do is to recognize that we have a country of adults not mentally uh, handicapped children and we're going to have to be more honest more realistic and say things like we're up against something we think that ivermectin might have some small therapeutic or prophylactic benefit. It might be that we're wrong about that. It might be much larger. But we also have this history on the vaccines, which we're releasing to you. Here's our knowledge of what we were doing in Wuhan. Uh, we may have lost the portfolio to use the EcoHealth Alliance as a stalking horse 
in order to make sure that we have access to Chinese uh, biological primitives. I don't know what those things are. I do know Peter Dajic doesn't make much sense. We caught Fauci and Collins through their emails. And right now, what we need is we need an adult national and international culture of science and health. Anything less is going to lead to exactly this problem. It's time to own up to the fact that Washington works on workaround culture. Many of the things said were lies, and many of the lies have been okayed by various public health people because they believe in the idea that they are the smart and we are the ignorant and it is their job to lead us. And it may even be true, but they can't lead us as if we're brain dead and dumb. They have to lead us as if many people in the non-medical world um, may have 150 IQs and be very well versed in biochemistry. You can't get away with lying at this level all the time. Hey, by the way, I know Aaron wants to talk really badly, but yeah. I've got a quick question on a subset of what you're saying. <laughs> what I want to know this real quickly when it comes to ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or whatever, the zinc, uh, vitamin D, you know, the, the whatever. And is it all that wrong <laughs> to apply those methods as a doctor with a patient as an attempt to get to a solution Eat when there isn't harm done by taking those, but and the only effect is a placebo effect. Is that really all that wrong? To that's allow not that what to we, that's not what happened. What they believed was assume that you even got a benefit and that there was no harm done from ivermectin. Let's say their belief was the harm is done because it's the harm to the EUA, not the harm to the patient from eating horse paste, as they so lovingly put it. And so what you have to understand is we're not even discussing the right object. The harm done is the harm to the EUA. And, and that thing is considered to be upstream of health of the population, assuming that it's our health that they're trying to maximize, which is a different question. But in any circumstance, um, the way a public health person thinks and the way a scientist I mean, the way I've, I've said it, which is offensive, but people will remember it if I make it offensive, is that public health is like the ex-spouse of a rich person who forgot to cancel a credit card. Science's ex-spouse is public health. And public health is on a, on a shopping spree of credibility, buying everything under the sun. And scientists are sort of seeing the, the bill where people are saying, screw science, what does science know? forget the universities, forget, forget uh, journal articles. That's the damage. So science has to cut public health off and say, you are on your own. You're, you're not spending the science credit card anymore. And if you want to be on our credit program, you're going to have to adhere to certain conditions of alimony. Karen? I'd like to talk about a couple of uh, proposals that could help with that. And if we look at what happened during the pandemic, it wasn't just the noble lie. It was the public health uh, officials and the people who were actually responsible for implementing many of our policies, whether it was lockdowns, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports. They began with a particular behavioral outcome in mind that they wanted. And it was usually an all or nothing behavioral outcome. It was everyone stay at home or everyone wear a mask or a needle in every arm. And then rather than taking complex and ever evolving science, and trying to translate it in a way that it could be more accessible to more people, which would have been a responsible approach to public health and, and explaining what's going on to the average person. They said, 
no, we're going to begin with a particular behavioral outcome in mind, and we're only going to release data or information, or we're only going to say things or highlight things, or we're going to suppress other things um, that will not be conducive to that outcome. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to tell you what we think you need to hear in order for you not to make an informed decision, but in order for you to do what we've already predetermined we want you to do. And if you think that through carefully, that's pretty much the definition of propaganda. And the average American may not be an expert in virology or epidemiology or anything else, but they can smell when they are being manipulated in subtle and not so subtle ways. They can, they can tell when they're being told things only in order to get them to do something. And I think what we have now is a situation in which many Americans, having been subjected subjected to that for the better part of two plus years and many of those actually experiencing censorship on social media when they tried to act, not not only just express opinions but even ask questions um they they're at a point now where their trust in in both science and medicine and public health for better or worse has been shattered i mean i talked to ceos I talked to but, Aaron, do, 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 do you think that would have happened without social media? Do you think social media led to the questioning that we have today? That the, um, the as as uh, Brett mentioned, that uh, sorry, Eric mentioned, uh, nation states did not have the control they had prior to the smartphone. I mean, it's a great it's a great hypothetical question. Um, I, I think without social media, the government could have still conducted a lot of uh, a lot of propaganda to sway people toward a particular behavior. Yeah, but outcome. I mean, I mean, but would people have res- have have questioned it, or, or would we have seen the same backlash as we saw today, if not for the smartphone and for social media, despite censorship? I, I think so, because you have to think about you know the the rights of people that were compromised during lockdowns or school closures uh, or vaccine mandates. I mean, pe- you know, people losing their jobs is a pretty big deal. Um, And if they're not allowed to question a policy that puts them in a position where they have to choose between, um, you know, a health related decision and their job, you know, they're, they're going to react to that. So I, I think there's a couple of public policy things that we could do to make what Eric is, is trying to push us toward more plausible. Uh, One is that if we're going to have federal institutions responsible for scientific tasks. Let's take the CDC first. Uh, the CDC has two functions that right now are fundamentally irreconcilable. They're at, at the very least intention and at worst, you know, irreconcilable. The first function is, is should be purely epidemiological. The CDC should gather uh, and is tasked with gathering epidemiological data from all 50 states and trying to put that data in a form that makes it uh, uh, meaningful. Different states have different methods, so the CDC has to sort of collate those and and try to create data sets that can be queried and studied. That should be done, I, in my view, in a way that's entirely transparent, and any qualified researcher should be able to request access to query that data. Right now, the CDC itself and their own in-house researchers are the only ones with access to most of that Data And as the New York Times review, uh, revealed earlier this year, when that data started to undermine some of the CDC's recommendations or policies, rather than walking back those recommendations or reconsidering uh, 
those policies. The CDC withheld much of its data on COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, or it slow walked it. Um, and, and that's because that, that first scientific function is, I would argue, irreconcilable with its function of making public policy recommendations. The sort of the sort of public health ex wife with the or spouse with a credit card running around, uh, you know, uh, cashing this thing out left and right. And that second function is inescapably political. And maybe we need a federal agency that has that inescapably political function of of making public health recommendations, many of which, as it happens, were immediately translated into public health mandates by both public and private institutions in this country. So that was an extremely powerful function that the CDC exercised, again, for better or worse. We need that agency to be split into two separate agencies, one whose job is only to make public health recommendations and has nothing to do with the scientific side of things, and the other, a purely epidemiological function that's done in ways that are entirely transparent and accessible uh, to both in-house and external researchers i think i think we can Aaron, by the, the nih and 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 kind of run through the same uh the same critique uh you know the the, the nih controls 80 85 percent of research funding in the united states the people at the nih can't be making public health or public policy recommendations because researchers are going to be very reluctant to contradict anthony fauci and francis collins uh, their views on vaccines or lockdowns or whatever out of fear that it might negatively impact their research fund. Hey, Aaron, Aaron, I wanted to, Aaron, I wanted to throw something in here though, but I mean, your point about the CDC, we need to keep in mind this uh, public policy recommendation aspect was never the original intent of the CDC. If I That's understand correct. it, yeah. if I understand it correctly, it is presently not a a stated policy that has been outlined by any congressional action since, and it is something it has undertaken, but the reason it has undertaken it is precisely for political reasons. And this open source, queryable data set approach to doing research, finding out what's going on, was the original intent of the CDC in response to some major outbreaks in this country and and that's something that that needs to be regained and congress needs to explicitly regain this it's going to be a challenge because so many uh, uh politicians in washington dc love to have control over the process by the way the nih and the naiad you know the nih and all of its sub organizations like the naiad is all about this roughly the same thing I want to go, go data and so forth. That's guys, it. I want to quickly go. I want to go, Mr. Levitt. Mr. Levitt, first time on the panel. Um, I want to ask you a question about something you tweeted. Kind of digressing a bit. Motivated reasoning. I like that tweet they did, and you used Twitter and Elon as an example. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that statement? Um, I'm actually not sure about what tweet you're referring to. Unfortunately, oh, okay. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you right now. So you're referring okay. to the herd mentality. Interesting. Those quote politically opposed to Elon oh. and Twitter. Are saying Twitter is doomed, whereas those grateful for Elon and Twitter are saying Twitter will be fine. I find it interesting from a psychological, sociological perspective. I'm not saying which perspective is right in this case, just that this may be a population-wide example of motivated reasoning. 
you're uh, muted, uh, Crayon. Oh, sorry. That was oh, a good. while ago, and thanks for reminding me, and I remember <laughs> it. Um, so, uh, yeah, this was right at kind of early on when Elon acquired Twitter, and what I noticed was that amongst my friend group, who are very intelligent but quite polarized along these issues, uh, kind of along the usual 80-20 uh, <clears throat> breakdown where I'm in Is the that your, your friends? You mean your friends at NASA because you've worked there for 32 uh, no, years? No, I worked at NASA for a long time, but for eight years I've, I've worked in a private space company, but it doesn't matter. My okay. friends are, okay. are ex-NASA. So anyway, uh, but you know, the, my friends are generally like kind of somewhat leftist, but quite compassionate and um uh, 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 in intelligent people, and I am a bit of an outlier there, where I take the more conservative views in a way, just to, you know, why not take an alternative view? Because what's the point if we all agree? But be that as it may, um, what my point there was that when when the deal went down, I don't remember exactly when it was with Elon on Twitter. What I noticed was that fairly quickly there was a polarization that took place, you know, uh, globally as well as in my friend group where. <laughs> there were there were there were people who who you know were kind of against it and people who were for it and people who who wanted him to fail and people who wanted him to succeed and succeed and the people who wanted him to fail were like Twitter's going to die look at all these people leaving for these other platforms and and other people who wanted him to succeed presumably were were saying no no it's it's going to be great and i just thought well isn't that interesting i could have predicted exactly who was going to who was going to come down on which side of this um I could have exactly predicted it. So, so that's what I meant by motivated reasoning. It's like what, what people already had in mind, uh, based I'm on seeing, their. I'm seeing it in every, like one, one thing I found, and I've learned many things from doing all these spaces for the past year or, or a few months, is that people come into the space with an opinion without even knowing the topic. And it's generally <laughs> along political ideologies, generally yeah. speaking, or certain, yeah. certain societal values. And it applies to literally everything. I haven't had one exception yet. Whether you're talking about um, Jeff Epstein, and I'm, yeah. I, you know, I want to cover that story. The more I research, the more I realize that it is worth discussing. Um, or medical thing, medical matters like COVID, or just random events that might happen, whether it's within yeah, crypto, outside of crypto. Like even within crypto, when when SBF got uh, arrested, FTX collapsed. That became political. No joke. That became political. Sure. It had nothing to do with politics. Yeah, well, it's very interesting to me, A, that this happens and is so predictable, and B, like, you know, is there anything I or we can do to sort of um, refine this? Because it seems to me that there's there's a number of possibilities, and I'm not an expert on this, for how to engage with one another, even if we have this polarization, in some cases, effectively, to... Uh, get past it and get to a synthesis. Do you mind if I bring up one or two other things that I just wanted to throw sure, out there? Sure. As possibilities? Yeah, because uh, we're looking okay. at wrapping up the space, so we'd, you'd, we'd love you to all come right. up with it. Well, maybe these are possibilities for another space. First of all, I've been on the internet since like the earliest days in the 1980s. Um, and uh, I think it was John Gilmore, who's a friend, an early internet pioneer, who said the internet interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. And I wonder to what extent that's what we're engaged in right here. Like, related to Twitter, especially Twitter 2.0, and Rumble, and Telegram, and Signal, and the Twitter files, and even Starlink, like, we might be seeing, I think Eric was talking about this in an earlier tweet, about, you know, it's the printing press 
And so I think that there might be something really important going on here as long as we can keep the internet from completely collapsing into some kind of great firewall and, you know, kind of fascist, uh, uh, unispeak. Um, but I also think things could escalate. Like people could, you know, like the government or whoever, the powers that be could, you know, force packets to not get routed to, to certain services or certain things. So it's very interesting to see how the, the internet itself is may or may not and, um, and, and we're seeing we're seeing that battle within social platforms already like we're seeing it now within twitter versus other platforms that are leaning more towards censorship so absolutely. we're seeing that split but it could be, and we're seeing it within geographical get, boundaries as well like we're seeing china versus russia yeah, versus the u.s versus get, norway it could get it could get very it could conceivably and i'm hoping this doesn't happen and i think that starlink is actually critical here because starlink presumably is being created as a censorship-free, or to some extent, a censorship-free global internet backbone. But, I mean, like, look, it's very easy for my monopoly internet provider in Southern California, where I live, to be like, oh, you know, the government told us, Creon, we can't route your packets to Twitter anymore, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So these things are technologically possible, so we'll see what happens and to what extent the technology arms race can route around it. And I want to mention on all this... I find an interesting thing regarding this kind of um, uh, <laughs> this kind of uh, you know government industry unispeak on a lot of these topics that I still notice that YouTube is kind of on the edge. I mean, YouTube has still it has videos from uh, you know Asim Halotra and even some of breath stuff on the edge on the edge of what on the edge of what exactly on the edge of being like totally controlled by uh the narrative if you will versus no, having no, a little bit of it's by the left it's not it's mm. not both sides controlling it's one side it's the democrats no, no. i i, I understand sorry go ahead creon but I will, I will, uh, you both not, I can't hear any of you. But I, look, I will say, just kind of wrap it up because we are wrapping up the space. Is, um, yeah, look, I, I, it's, it's, a, Brian, good to see you. It's been, it's been like what, two years, three years I haven't seen you on stage? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, back yeah, in well, Clubhouse the notion, the, the, the notion is that both sides are controlling it and it's just not true. I mean, the, I love Google and they, they, they provide a great service, but they're left, they're hell bent on being left. And they're using their leftist policies to control a dialogue. And, I understand and, and your to, point of view. You, I understand no, your point, point of view. It's a point of fact. Okay, and, fine. And, I understand, and, and I don't own. disagree. I don't disagree, right. except so, except to say that YouTube is still got some, you know, counter narrative content on it. It really does. I mean, you must. Oh know no, this. it does. It does. Okay, so that's but, just but, interesting. But, that's but, interesting. But, is all I'm saying. Sir, so, so all I can say is it's like it's like Fox occasionally having somebody from the left on their show or CNN having the lowest common denominator person from the right and saying, listen, we're balanced. And, it, and it's anything but balanced. Well, I don't know if having Asim Malhotra and Brett Weinstein and people like that still on YouTube is the lowest common denominator. I think YouTube well, well, is doing a little better than that. No, no, in the volume. Of, of what they have in the when you take the totality of what they have and what they allow uh, you know you know having a couple of very strong voices on an opposing side it, it doesn't offset the massive amount of uh, 
free flow that the other side gets. Fair enough. Agreed. So I will, I will, because uh, we did go over time. I appreciate Brian Creon would love you on stage uh, in a future space as well. Uh, Dave, Dr. Sayed, I apologize, didn't have a chance to get to you as well. Would love you, to invite you to the next space. But, um, you know, conclusion from this, Nick, Eugene, thanks a lot for doing this, for debating earlier. Nick, what do you think? What, what's, what's the, like, the, the couple of nuggets that you've learned from the space, man? What's that one thing? Uh, I like the I, noble, I, I like the noble lie discussion. For me, that right, was really right. interesting. That, it's, that, it's, it's, it's a very tough topic to debate, though. But I do think there, there does need to be a debate on it at some point. But Eric's points were fantastic on that was the point, you know, where, where how do you argue for that noble lie? Right. Um, I, I think that there was, in my opinion, there was a hell of a lot of collateral damage that came from the health officials lying in the beginning. But, you know, I would love to hear that counter argument. And I don't think many people have uh, have made it yet. So. I'll do this. I'll end this space with the following. Eugene, you still there? I've got one oh, yeah. small, I mean, short I question for you. Argument to yeah. I would love to I'll, I'll, to make it I'll let you. Yeah, of course. I'll let you give a counter argument. Then I've got a question for you because you obviously uh, you've been on stage a few times, a proponent of the, of the vaccine. I want to ask you a question. Like, what's the one thing that concerns you the most about the vaccine, being a proponent of the vaccine and a, and a person that is vaccinated? Yeah. So you know, as a person who is a proponent of the vaccine, uh, the one thing that if you had, you know, that's a good question. The one thing that I would be concerned about is how new variants of the COVID-19 virus keep, keep on coming out and how these variants can um, seemingly evade the vaccine, right? And you but think it, it, could be, it could be possible the vaccine is playing a role in increasing the number of variants and the speed in which those variants are coming up? Um, I wouldn't go so far to say that I believe that that's what's happening. No, I'm not saying I you believe. It, could it be a possibility? No, Pause. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Aaron made a good argument about how the vaccines teach our body to only fight the spike protein. But then when you're actually uh, infected by the real, you know, coronavirus, they have the envelope protein. They have many other components within the virus that your body learns how to fight against. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a compelling argument. I, I think we would need to see more evidence and, and uh, you know, science always evolves. And if that's are you concerned, are you concerned evidence, about the vaccine being in your system? And with the number of people that are uh, dying suddenly, are you at all concerned about that? So, like I said, I think we need to look at the highest quality evidence and the largest, you know, studies that have the most patients before coming to conclusions based on a study here, a study there. We can't base medical practice based on, you know, prevailing opinions or something that trends on social media or or, or, or study here. Not to interrupt, but ordinarily, a vaccine is taken off the market with a far less uh, rate of, of fatalities and injury. And so you, you're not at all concerned, apparently, that this is having many times the number of injuries and or fatalities than what would be accepted at any time in U.S. history. That does you, not need to separate, you need to separate opinion from fact. Right, there are no, more than right. five no, no, billion no, I, doses of the vaccine given out. Uh, no, and, I'm talking about fa- I'm talking about factual data. Factual data. See, would that's say what we have under to normal, and, Under normal circumstances, this bad boy would have been pulled off the market a month into being released. So I'll go to to Aaron. Eugene, you want to respond to the noble lie point before I get uh, you know yeah, one, yeah, one yeah, final th- speaker th- to come on. Thanks, Mario. So. Um, when Brett Weinstein or uh, was was talking, or I think it was was it Brian or Brett Weinstein, Brett, the previous speaker, Brett, uh, yeah. but no, Eric, Eric, sorry, Eric. Oh, Eric, Weinstein. sorry. 
So when Eric uh, Weinstein was, was talking about the noble lie, I just wanted to offer a counterpoint to that. You know, I think there was a lot of confusion in the public about the difference between an N95 mask, which does protect you from the coronavirus, versus, you know, regular surgical mask or a cloth mask, which doesn't protect you from getting Cite the your coronavirus, sources, please. but it does protect you from spreading it if you're sick, right? So there are two different kinds of masks. Um, and during the, the, the PPE shortage, I think uh, society wanted physicians and frontline medical workers to have access to the N95 masks um, so that they can protect themselves from getting sick from the coronavirus. I let Dr. Said once you're done, Eugene. I'd like Dr. Said to respond as a, as a final point. And Joanne, I know you've had your hand up for a long time as well uh, before ending the space because I know Dr. Said, you, you know, you, we've, we've struggled to bring you up earlier. So, yeah, do you want to actually comment, Dr. Said, on Eugene's point about the masks? Because I saw you put the thumbs down. Yeah, um, I thought you would see that. So, um, so Eugene, you know, somebody mentioned while, you know, while you were talking, you know, cite the data. Masks don't work. We've known this for 30 years. They just don't work. So that's a fact. And when, when people can't agree on facts, then how can you have a discussion? When you say debate, masks right? don't work, are you no, talking we, about the N95 we... mask or the cloth okay, mask? Yeah, even the N95 mask. There's no good data showing that it works that's for the last true. 30 years, that's especially not, not for COVID-19. That's an incorrect statement. Yeah, so the people who think it's incorrect, they haven't actually looked at all of the data, all right? They are un, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. And if we can't bring up all the data so that everyone can look at it and agree that this is factual data, this is data that we should be looking at, then we can't have a really uh, a valid discussion. And there's a lot of dis intellectual dishonesty where people are, you know, they're responding to something that the speaker's not saying, right? They're, they're knocking down straw man arguments. And, and I think it would be great if we could bring up, you know, publish all the mask studies, look, maybe go through a substack that looks at all the entire history of masking. Does it even make sense from like a physics perspective? Could it possibly work? Right? So I, I think the data is clear, but you know, you're, you're cherry picking the data. And so you can say like, based on the studies that I trust in these journals, masks work right and if you actually read the studies the the conclusions of the studies on masks they, they don't accord with the actual data in the papers all right if you read the paper you realize this paper proves the masks don't work you know n95 so, masks have been used for a long time not just for covid but for tuberculosis exactly. airborne respiratory diseases and and they do offer not 100 protection but documented protection against airborne pathogens so, Dr. Dernish, Der I see you agree with Eugene, but why is it that disagreement? Why is it disagreement on such for what I, I, I consider? Think there's, a, there's a concern around. So, this is one thing in medicine that we really struggle with, which is efficacy versus effectiveness. And I, I think I, we might be speaking past each other, and that's totally fine. It happens in medicine all the time. We do it every single day. But, uh, you know, in reality, are masks efficacious? So, a well fitting N95 mask on somebody. Uh, uh, is it efficacious in reducing rest, uh, exposure to respiratory pathogens? I'm an ear, nose, throat doctor. I can tell you that there's enough data out there. We, when we're doing procedures, uh, we wear N95 masks all the time to protect ourselves. It is a common practice. There's tons of data supporting that a well-fitting N95 masks uh, and sometimes but then, the respirators. How, how, how could she there's a lot of qualifications in that statement, right? Well-fitting. You've been trained on it. That, so let me have my beard. I'm just going to finish my sentence real quick because it will be helpful uh, to because uh, it's making the point for both sides. And I think that's the point that I'm trying. This is the, the challenge. When people build a narrative that they've like built their entire personality around, it makes it very difficult. So I'm just going to make it very, very clear. Efficacy means it's a well-fitting mask 
which means that it's been and they've been trained on it. They know how to use it or it's a respirator. Those do re- reduce your exposure to respiratory pathogens. But the average person walking around is not wearing a well-fitted mask and has not been fitted for it like I was fitted for it. And like Dr. Sayed was fitted for it or like Eugene was fit. This is like, again, we're, we're just talking about the fact that we're doing a poor, poor job of making something that works really well in a lab or in a clinical setting with professionals and Dr. trying Say to disagreed, Dr. Dernish. the whole way. Dr. Say disagreed. I, I, I like I that. I agree as well. Oh, perfect. There you go. I think Dr. Dernish, you've kind of, you, you've, you've, um, so this is where the nuances kick in, where we, you all agreed, but it's just the way it was articulated and how the point is made. So now the point for the audience, just so, so we got through one point here to end the space is that the point is that Masks, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, because I might have misunderstood, but masks work if they're used correctly. Is that uh, And if they're respirator. replaced frequently, you have to replace the N95 very frequently. Which I would, so which I would add in the basket of use correctly. Using correctly means replacing frequently. And most people so don't follow this. Speaking, practically speaking, how can it actually work on a population level, right? That's my point. That's but, but, a, that's but a fair say point. That, they, that masks don't work. No offense. And again, for what we're trying you know, to I, do at a population so would you say, level. So, Dr. Said, would you say, so there's two it, solutions to it then? There's a solution of like, just say, guys, masks don't work, don't bother. Or masks work, just you have to use them properly and constantly educate and maybe put in processes in place to make sure people use them properly. Would, and this is where maybe. It, it would ahead, be impossible to train 350 million people and then give them enough N95 to But don't we, them don't we, don't, we've trained, we've trained billions of people on how to drive a car properly. So maybe there is a way to do it just to, it's just not simple. I'm not saying it's a solution. Like I'm just thinking out loud here. Uh, I'm just glad that we kind of agree on a final point. Joanna, you've had your, your, your hand up for so long. Maybe you can wrap up the space with a final few comments. Sure, I'm happy to do it. You know, I'm 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 humbled to um, have had Eric Weinstein, you know, on this on this uh, space. I think that that is so cool, and a lot of the a lot of the points that were being echoed earlier really um, hearken to Curtis Yarvin for me, actually. And I think that the reality is, just in conclusion, you know, as we're wrapping up here, is to underscore that I, I believe that we're really at a transition point um, in our relationship between healthcare politics, and public health, um, as we conceive of it. And I, uh, I think that it's an exciting time. It's uh, a frightening time, I think, a little bit to be a physician amidst all this, you know, to, to remain gain, gainfully employed, you know, and, and having these discussions um, is not without risk for a lot of the clinicians that are here on this platform. I commend all of you. Um, and thank you, Mario, um, for hosting um, I think that that this is a this is a really interesting and exciting time. Thank you, Jim. Final words? Yeah, I I want to harken back to the uh, space we had a couple weeks ago with uh, Dr. Drew and and that panel. And one of the things that Dr. Drew pointed out there was how refreshing it was in that particular panel that we had. And I'm sure we could duplicate it and should that uh, that people in the medical profession were having a dialogue again. One of, you know, the, the, the noble lie thing, I think we definitely need to pick up and then we need to assess uh, where the ignoble lies happened in this case. I mean, it's, it's one of the research quote, I'm using air quotes here. One of the research things that we, we need to do. We have to come to a place fairly quickly in our society where we can re review 
the uh, how politics got inserted into this particular pandemic situation and really threw everything off balance that we used to be good at. Now, there's no pandemic that ends up good. They all end up bad or else it's not a pandemic. I mean, by, de- by definition, that becomes a problem. So what we need to do as a society, not just in the United States, but worldwide, we need to reevaluate. And this is why having Eric Weinstein on is so fantastic because you know, he, he brings an expertise that, that's not as a medical practitioner or, or, or so forth. But it does bring, a again, this logical approach to thinking through, go back and deductively analyze what we got wrong. I mean, there were ignoble lies. I mean, for example, uh, you know, uh, we were just talking about looking at large data sets uh, to see how all the vaccine situation played out. But we never had a large data set in bringing the vaccine out to begin with. And certainly there was a rush because there was a concern. And we all accept that. I mean, that's that was a critical factor. We did not know where this was going to go. But we've we've left the typical approaches that we've had. And, and real quickly as to masks. And we didn't go to uh, the philosophies and, and the research behind isolation and and other types of things isolation and quarantine, which were approaches we've used in the past. And we need to reevaluate how that might have affected this situation. So there's a discussion to be had. And we did have it a couple of weeks ago, and we need to extend that again. I think we had it We had it to an extent today. It's a bit different, but we kind of, did, you know, we did have that dialogue today. Nick, final words, because we do have to wrap up the space. Uh, sure. I just want to say I want to give a programming note right here. We had a lot of interesting conversations here today, but this is nothing compared to what's going to happen when the Fauci files come out here in a few days. Uh, so make sure you're following Mario. Uh, make sure you're following all the speakers here because we're going to have a, a really great panel and a really great space on that. Uh, we expect to learn a lot. So I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, man. Eugene, Aaron, Dr. Syed, Catherine, Jim, Dr. Darnish, uh, Joanna, Dave, uh, and of course, Eric Weinstein and all other speakers that came on the panel earlier. Thank you as always. Really appreciate it. Probably we'll see you tomorrow and uh, we'll definitely see you when the Fauci files drop. Thanks a lot, everyone. Really appreciate it. Oh, Tara's there as well. I thought you, you went off, Tara. Any final words, Tara? No, I didn't know you were okay. mine. I'm used to it. Great <laughs> Thank job, you so much everybody. for joining as well. Thank you, Great everyone. Really appreciate today. it.